This is Two True Freaks, number 145, for the week of October 11th, 2010. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle stations! This is Captain Kirk. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle stations. No! Now, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Hello, and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 24. This is the uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday for the week of Monday, October the 11th, 2010. Sweet. I am Chris Honeywell. And I am. here with Scott Gardner. (laughs) And he is Scott Gardner. And I'm Scott Gardner. And he just can't wait to... To get to the Star Trek this week. I thought you were uh, leaving me an opening there to say my name. I didn't mean to walk all over you, sir. I guess, yeah. Don't don't walk all over me when I'm not leaving you an opening. <laughs> so how's it going? Good. Now, I had a little fantasy about this ep- episode that, that we would have picked randomly. Was it perverted? No. Well, I guess it is. I... I was, ho- you know, we were sort of, we were sort of talking about this at the last episode. It would have been awesome if this would have been a double feature of the enemy within and, and data oh, lore. But, yeah. yeah. And we were kind of bemoaning that we had uh, today's episode, which is a private little war, because we both remembered it being sort of a clunker. Yeah. I, I I was pleasantly surprised to find that you know while it's not the most. Uh, exciting or action-packed episode or even, you know, the best episode. I still enjoyed it. I really did. And, you know, you and I were talking just before we started recording that I, I think, once again, this is another one that uh, that proves that, you know, Star Trek offers every you know something for every age group because this is one of those that when I was a kid, it, it just, I think, frankly, it was just a little too adult a story for me, so I was yeah. bored by it. And the only thing I, I could remember from when I was a kid watching this one was the Magatu and uh, the woman smearing dog shit on Captain Kirk. God damn it. And other than that, I didn't remember anything about this episode. I remembered it being, like, really boring. 
but now watching it again as an adult, I'm like, okay, now I get it. And, you know, like I say, it's still not the greatest episode, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a good I one. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> so, you know, before we start jabbering about it, why don't you uh, tell the folks what it's all about, man? Oh, yeah, I should do that. All right, this is uh, A Private Little War. This is from the second season of Star Trek. This one first aired... On February 2nd, 1968, just a few short months before uh, Chris and I uh, here uh, debuted yep. for the first time as well. Yep. So uh, let's see here. The Enterprise journeys to the planet Neural, which I don't think is ever even named in this episode, but I could be wrong about that. No, I don't think so. Which uh, Kirk had visited 13 years before. Klingons are attempting to take over the planet using their customary tactic of arming a segment of the population, the hill people, while the Klingons themselves stay hidden in the background. Spock, wounded in an ambush, is removed back to the Enterprise while Kirk and McCoy search for Tyree, the tribal leader whom Kirk had befriended in his youth. Kirk, bitten by a deadly Mugatu is cured by Tyree's mystic witch wife, no- Nona? Is it Nona? Nona, yes. Nona or Nuna? No- Nona, okay. While Kirk tries to convince Tyree to fight with the weapons the Federation will provide, Nona indulges in intrigues of her own. She steals Kirk's phaser, but the hill people murder her before she can demonstrate its power. Her death turns Tyree into a fighting man. Kirk and McCoy leave the planet deeply saddened that they could do nothing to end the hostilities, and in fact, have compounded the conflict by providing a balance of power. And that's a private little war. That about sums it up. That about sums it up. You know, there is no uh, mention in this synopsis, though, that I, you know, because I was waiting to see it in here, and it's not in here. This, by the way, is out of the the Star Trek compendium by Alan Asherman, which we have mentioned a number, number of times on the show. Anyway... I was waiting in the synopsis to see if it mentioned uh, Dr. Mabenga, and it does not mention any about that. This is uh, Dr. Mabenga's first appearance in this episode, and I think he only pops up in one or two other episodes. But I, I kind of like that character and had always yeah. wished we got a little bit more of him, but we, we don't. Other than I, I know he pops up in some of the novels, you know, some of the early uh the early novels and stuff, because I remember him being in some of those for, I couldn't tell you which ones, but I always kind of dug his character. Thought he, I thought he probably had a really interesting story that never really got developed at all. He you know? seemed to be a very interesting character. He's got a, definitely got a sense of humor. You know, yeah. he was very, he actually, he reminded me a little bit of a more sober, as in, not as in not drunk, but as in just a little more emotionally controlled McCoy, you know? Yeah. A, a little more doctor-like, you know, or, you know, the the distance doctor a little more. But he still had a sense of humor, which we saw in this episode. Yeah. Well, in a classic do-do-do-do-do-do-do <laughs> moment. Well, it's interesting to me that, you know, McCoy mentions that uh, Mabenga interns in a Vulcan ward or clinic or whatever he says. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking that, you know, you would think that a character like that would be Vulcan-like, you know, very stolid uh, uh. and very disciplined and all that. And like you say, he's not like that at all. He's He kind of jokes around, and he just seems like a regular guy. So I want to see that explored. You know, how in the world did a human, you know... Well, you'd, you'd think with Spock being the first officer that he would have come in handy a lot more in this 
the series, you know, yeah. and being the the Vulcan medical expert, especially since McCoy is always going. I don't know anything about this damn Vulcan metabolism. You know, that's you know, a great point. Where the hell was Mabenga when when McCoy had to put Spock's brain back in? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, at least he would have wanted to observe and be like, you know, here's a rare chance to see, probably the only chance ever to see a Vulcan brain put back into a skull. Right. But then again, he might have been on and You know, these guys might take a little tour on the Enterprise, but Mabenga being a Vulcan medic might be getting transferred all over the place and doing other ah, things throughout point. Starfleet, maybe. That's a good point. I don't know. What the hell's the other episode with him in it? Do you know? I have no idea. Yeah. I know I know I'll there's know at it. least one get more. To it. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's at least one more, but I, off the top of my head, I cannot remember what it is. But, uh, but yeah, I, I like his character. And uh, in keeping up with our tradition of uh, mentioning which of the, uh, the, the seven, you know, the core seven appear and don't appear, um, everybody but Sulu is in this one, you know, of, of, of our core seven uh-huh. players. So what do you got for notes on this one? Well, A, (laughs) it has the classic, and, you know, these are just humorous, you know. I have one major problem with this show, this episode, and then a lot of just, you know, minor little quibbles, like... you know, the I understand they have a budget, but you know, how many times do they go down to a planet where there's two tribes and the only difference is, is one of them have like white beetle wigs and the other ones have black beetle wigs? You know, that's what that's how you distinguish this you know, the city dwellers from you I know I hate those damn black beetle those, wig people. Those black beetle wigs are so the black beetle wigs are just humorous because they look like actual beetle wigs and the guys are schlumping through the desert, you know, in their loincloths a beetle wig. The but lead so, guy, Appella, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but the scene where we meet him for or see him for the first time and he's talking to the Klingon that uh-huh. dude looks like he's right out of a seventies porn movie. Oh yeah, he's just like yeah, or he looks like Ringo Starr from Caveman yeah. or yes. something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and something about maybe I don't know what it was about costuming in old Star Trek, but they really just dug white hair. You know, let's give these aliens white hair, white hair, and it's really funny when you see like. And 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 there's always all these planets of native tribes, and they're like sunny desert planets because they're the you know the back lots of in in California, and so you have these very okay you know desert like rock and trees and sunny planets and and natives in loincloths, and they're always white guys with white hair. You'd think they'd all have like skin cancer by the time they were 22 years old, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, native people that live out in the sun get you, you know dark. They get like Native Americans, you know. Yeah, they but get they that, they that. haven't they haven't invented fluorocarbons yet, so they haven't eroded their ozone uh, yet. So they're they're good to go. Yeah, I guess so. Or their bo- their their skin secretes like you know what is it SP you know ninety four sunblock or something like that it it's actually comes out of their oily beetle hair and drips all down their body and protects them from the the cruel uv rays you know now that i think about it um you know i was talking about how i i'd, I'd like to get you know mabenga's story 
There's another really good story, I think, that could come out of this. And maybe it's been done. For all I know, it's probably a novel that's already out there. I'm just not aware of it. But I'd like to know uh, Tyree's story. You know, it's obvious that he knows that Kirk is an extraterrestrial or an extra whatever the hell the name of this planet is. Yes. You know, he, he's not from there. What's that story all about? I would love to know that. You know, there, yeah. there's definitely a story there because, you know, Kirk, you know, it's it's established right at the beginning of this episode that the, that the prime directives in effect are not allowed to interfere. They're not allowed to, you know, use uh, phasers or the transporter or you know, any of their advanced technology. They're not allowed to let the native people know that they're not from that planet. Yet Tyree knows all this. And I want to know, how how does that work? You know? I think Kirk doing his Kirk, you know, defying the rules probably was like this. He probably... Tyree... I mean, he's he's definitely dogmatic on his people's principles of nonviolence. But maybe he's a little more philosophically advanced or something, or, you know, maybe Kirk, you know, found him to be, uh, you know, somebody he could say, hey, look, I'm from another planet, and Tyree, w- and, you know, Kirk trusted him enough to where he knew Tyree would understand it and not be like, hey, Kirk's, in, you know, let me explain to you guys about the extraterrestrials or right. or whatever, you know. it's It seemed like that. It seemed like they had a very intense relationship, you know. And how awesome it, would it have been, though, if they had come back to that planet in this episode after Kirk had been there 13 years before, and there was like a giant Kirk-headed pyramid that they that he, you know Tyree had had his people build in the meantime or something? I yeah, think that exactly. Would That's cool. usually what happens. Yeah, with exactly. Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> There's little Kirk babies running around all over the place. Yeah, um, it's just. And uh, this this is the episode where we get to to see that wonderful scene with the space Viagra, where she's just like, "Here, let me rub this on your face," and he starts like <laughs> pawing at the ground and running and like you are grabbing beautiful. on grabbing onto trees and humping them and stuff. I love it. Just completely like eyes glazed over, and of course she comes at Kirk with that too. Yep. But the horn dog that Kirk is, that shit never like. Can never defeat the Enterprise. <laughs> no space Viagra will ever pull Kirk away from the Enterprise. Now I had uh, you. You said you had a real big problem with this episode, though. What, what was your big problem? Because I had a big my, problem with it as well. My big problem with this, the one that the the story defeater in it that would have made it not possible to have this story, would have been like Kirk and crew find out what's going on. They find out the Klingons are there. They go down. They check out what's happening. Then the, what What I would think is if I was thinking as a Starfleet captain, the next thing I would do was get up to the ship, get out of there, and go someplace safe where I could transmit off something to Starfleet and say, hey, look, the Klingons are on planet, you know, on this on this planet, and they're violating, you know, the, the treaty that we have, you know. Right. Obviously, we have we have treaties and zones with the Klingons where you know where neither of us are supposed to fuck around. So obviously, this is some place where the Klingons aren't supposed to be fucking around. And uh, so there's got to be some Federation legal recourse to it. You know, usually with something like that is okay. You expose it, and the Kling- and 
You know, you take it back to the Federation. The Federation, the the Federation politicians go to the Klingon politicians, and everybody yells at everybody else. And the Klingon politicians say, "Look, it's not worth getting into war over this. Let's pull out." You know that that would have been how I would have figured to solve the situation without, and then I would have done a little damage control, maybe. At, with Tyree and said, "Hey, look, Tyree, you guys got to gather up whatever guns are left, you know, from the Klingons and uh, and wipe them out. And maybe Tyree would have to actually do a little. Well, Tyree wasn't going to be a killer; it wouldn't have been a killer at that point. But you probably would have had to wipe out the guys who know how to make the flintlocks <laughs> at that point. But you know, that's what I would have done instead of arming the, you know, trying to arm them and." leading it into a you know into the escalation that you know it'll be of each side you know slowly ramping up that's what sort of bothered me about it that 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 you know Kirk didn't think it through enough and had to come to a really bad you know and, and he admitted you know they admitted it's just a, it was a bad solution it was a solution nobody wanted right but it was the only solution to that to dealing with it that way and uh you know, I mean, you can chalk it up to Kirk being a, Vul- or a Vulcan hater, a uh, Klingon hater, but I don't think he was as much of a Klingon hater at this point because, you know, I don't think he really became, had a death grudge, you know, a big grudge against him till David got killed. So, I don't know. That's, I don't think I would have dealt with it that way if I were Kirk. I don't think Kirk would have, re- well, it's hard to say, Kirk... Yeah. Kirk had his own little personal drama going on in all this too, you know, and it was all about just th- this was just a show of just like all about manipulation, you know. Everybody, you know, Tyree's wife manipulating everybody, and the Klingons manipulating, and Kirk manip. It was just, it was a real, it was a really good um, prime directive episode, you know. I I, t- I still don't really understand what it was exactly that the Klingons were doing. Because if if the plot here was for them to eventually take over the planet, arming one side with with flintlocks seems like a pretty slow way to do it. I mean, why not just go for broke and give them a bunch of disruptors? Well, because I think... uh, You see here, even my theory sort of... It doesn't fail, but it depends on a couple elements being in place. One being, there's a reason the Klingons would want this planet, you know. Is it, you know, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that either the planet is, just would be a good state, you know, has some sort of, um, oh, you know, um, strategic value, or it has some sort of um, resource value, you right. know, like dilithium crystals or something, that the Klingons think at some point in the future they would want to control it. Or, you know, so, but instead of, you know, letting the Federation know that they're in, because if they give them disruptors, ah, the Federation will figure out the Klingons did it. Flintlocks, you know, would be a little harder to trace. And I think they were just trying to... They were doing it on the stealth. They were like, okay, we'll arm this one side and we'll make ourselves known to them. So then in the future, 
you know, if we have to use this planet, we could come in and the people who are in control are beholden to us. You know, they're friendly to the Klingons and they owe their power to us. So basically the planet's theirs by proxy. Ah, uh, okay. That's what that's what I was guessing was was going on there. But they didn't really spell out there being any kind of uh anything that, that there was a stake in, in in that. Right, yeah. They're just simply there and they're arming one side. And I, I realize that this whole episode is is supposed to be um an allegory for the Vietnam War. But still, you know, a, a little bit of an explanation of of why these things were going on, I, I felt would have been nice rather than just simply it, it's happening. Yeah, know? it was like the, the well, I guess, you know, I guess the planet was part of the the Klingon domino effect, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, they've been there before. The only thing they really said the planet had going for it was it's Eden like purity which isn't a big Klingon value so yeah you know I I, sometimes I I, this is this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with with Star Trek or even this episode but you know it kind of drives me crazy in fiction when when somebody I I think sometimes Eden and uh, 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 like an idyllic utopia type of thing, I, I think those two ideas get confused sometimes in fiction. You know, I don't know about you, but the idea of, of, of this planet being perfect, you know, because Kirk keeps calling it an Eden. And I'm thinking it looks pretty boring to me. I wouldn't want to live amongst a bunch of, you know, white wig wearing, you know, primitives with their stupid flintlocks and stuff well you wouldn't wouldn't think of that as an idyllic situation you know well what if all they what if all they do is eat and you know eat till the fields and mate with their beautiful women Eh, sounds boring to me i need some music i need some culture you know yeah well you didn't see any music in culture but we didn't get too much of an in-depth you know i mean maybe if we could see kirk's report that he filed back in the in the old days you know, to see what their culture and, uh, you know, they might be able to go into trances that are like the holodeck and are having insane, <laughs> you know, are astrally traveling around the universe and stuff. And they're like, <laughs> you know, we could go and create a mansion in our mind. Why do we need anything but a teepee, you know? Mm. We just need a teepee to keep the rain off us. Either that or they're just so, they're, they're, you are, you have your, your whole baggage of your culture and your, you know, where you've grown up with all this stuff that it's hard to imagine not having it and they're in this pure state of you know there is food and there is you know shelter and blah 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 the love of a good woman what more could we ever need you know it's like ah, digital watches dude yeah, I need my room full of comics and my internet have, have you ever heard of let me tell you something about this stuff called porn <laughs> <laughs> that's like when Harry Mudd shows up Yep, there you go. Hey, it's like, I got. Have you guys ever heard of satellite TV? Oh my God! What <laughs> are you guys go. doing? <laughs> there you go. Need you the, I need the up. cable. Yeah, need to have the cable. Otherwise, it's just not an idyllic society to me. You know, one thing I was absolutely shocked to discover rewatching this episode. I always thought, you know, of course, this is just me misremembering because I, I I didn't know this episode very well. 
But I always thought there was only one Mugatu. And there's actually I did two of them. I thought that was pretty cool. You you did as well? You thought Yes, and just, just a trivia one? aside, the Mugatu was played by the same guy who played the Horda. Yeah, in, in I saw the, that. And the uh, the rock dude from... Uh, uh, oh, really? Savage Curtain, yeah. Ah. Yarnak, or whatever the hell his name was. There, yeah. <laughs> I love those kind of names. Yarnak! Um, What's well, also funny, I was reading this somewhere, that um, DeForest Kelly kept calling it Mugatu, but it was actually supposed to be Gumatu. And if you look in the end credits of the show, it's still called the Gumatu. But oh. he, he had misspoken, so they just ran with it. They just the stayed whole, with it, yeah. yeah. For the whole rest of the episode. I got a kick out of that. Why not, you know, at yeah. that point? <laughs> and the Mugatu has just gone down in faith. Even, even as a little kid, there's something scary and disturbing and goofy about it all at the same time. <laughs> all at the so same it's time, yeah. all this this battle of mixed signals when it shows up and like and then the second time it shows up and it's fighting, you know, fighting the you know, the medicine woman. Doctor Quinn. Huh? That would be awesome. Doctor Quinn, Quinn versus the Mugatu. I Mugatu. See. And it can't kill her. You know, because it's gotta fight with her a while while Kirk, you know, rolls around in the Roll, royals of his of his space Viagra, but <laughs> you know, watching it sort of spin its wheels and like paw the ground and stuff was just cracking me up. It was just like, oh, look, you know, and and you can sort of see the pads on its feet, but it's just just a classic, <laughs> classic weird. You know, the you could tell that the horns are a little bit like soft because they're like wiggling around. Wasn't there a, a Migo or something of the Mugatu? I want to. I'm almost positive there was a one. figure or something at one time of the Mugatu. I'd swear there was. That, that there was a ben, that Ben Stiller movie about the male model Zoolander. Zoolander, actually, the Will Ferrell character is named Mugatu in that, <laughs> and I'm sh- you know it comes from Star Trek. Oh yeah. I never seen that. I don't, don't much care for uh, for either one of those guys, to be honest with you. But that's funny, and, though. And here's something they did not mention in the synopsis. There is the whole. Well, it, we we talked about it just sort of tangentially um, because of um, the doctor. But you know, Spock's Spock's initial injury. In yeah. This and and uh, and then. Um, which his the scene when he gets shot and falls to the ground is awesome. He That's just flung himself to the stunt. ground and yeah. just like flops flops there limply. It was just like holy shit, that looks uh, pretty you know pretty uh, painful fall there. It was convincing. But, it reminds me of those those person gets hit by a car videos you see on like YouTube or something. Yes, <laughs> that we were watching last night or the <laughs> yeah. night before. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know his. His whole recovery. First, it's a little creepy with Nurse Chapel sleep touching him as he's passed out. You know, like a frat boy at a frat party. She's just like, "Ooh, hi, Mister Spock." They cut out the scene where she was rubbing his unit, though. Yeah. Just going. I wonder if what they say is true. <laughs> Ooh, it is pointy. <laughs> <laughs> but another another aside. This is, I think, the I don't know if I've ever seen green blood before or since. When he gets shot, you can actually see there's green blood Ooh, yeah, on his good, shirt. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm and, trying, uh, now, you, now you got me thinking. I've never it, noticed green. I've never seen green blood before. Oh, with, I know we Spock. see it again, but I'm trying to think if. Oh yeah, now, now, oh man, that's going to test the old brain muscle right there to think. I don't know. I'll and have I, to come back to that. I'll have to. And think I can't about believe that. the synopsis didn't, you know, talk about the whole thing that in order for a Vulcan to recover, you got to beat the shit out of him. You know, you got to punch him about the face in order for him to, you know, be able to recover from a bad injury. I love when Scotty comes in the room too, and he's like, "What the hell? What are you doing, woman?" Yeah, then the doctor runs in and is like, "What? No!" <laughs> he just starts punching. Spock and Scotty's just like the whole world has gone insane. <laughs> I'd love it if he just threw his hands up and said, "Well, I've got other things to do." Uh, I guess. Or just or just pulls out his phaser and shoots him and goes. <laughs> I just figured. I just figured. I was. Yeah, I was just trying to catch up with, with the program. I don't know. Sorry. Spock falls back into a coma and dies. Yeah. Whoops. I. I... <laughs> I thought he was dangerous. You guys were punching him. What was Scotty doing there anyway? He just happened to... He just, just was walking in. Yeah. It was just like... It was one of those weird things where it was like... The door... I don't know if the door was open and he was like... Doopie-doo walking by and like... Hey! Oh, shit! Or if he just like opened the door and is just like... Oh! I, I kind of got the impression like he was coming by for a visit or something. <laughs> but he's like kind of a, a, an odd choice to be coming to visit... Mm-hmm. Spock in the sick bay. I mean, do we ever see that any other time? You know, where maybe where he was coming sp- to sneak him a little bit of a little bit of scotch or something. You know, maybe he's coming to like pull the plug on the life support because he's tired of Spock always being the one to come down there and show him up. You know, when when Scotty can't figure something out yeah. down there in engineering, it's always Spock that's got to go down there, like oh, Christ, you know, and fix everything because you know Scotty's. Not competent enough. Or yeah, something. but Star Trek Two sorts that all out. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Star Trek Two, Scotty's Revenge. Oh, that's it's favorite. radiation. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great equalizer right there. <laughs> I was looking at uh, something. I don't even know what site I'm on here about Mabenga. The other episode that he's in is That Which Survives, was that one. The only thing I can remember about it is the one where the creepy woman has to touch everybody, remember? Oh. She pops up on the surface of that. What's a, it's like an asteroid or something, and she's like, I must touch you. That's like the only I thing am I can for, remember. I am for Kirk. Yeah, yeah, I that one. I must touch you. Yep. That was, the, that was like in the first Star Trek uh, Alan Dean Foster Book that, really? or James Blish book that I read. Oh, that you? Oh, okay. I thought you was, were meant, like, was that the first episode book. Of... I was like, man, that's like right at the end of the series. But you mean the first one that you read? Yeah, it was like one of the first stories in it was was that one and the one where Kirk smells the honey smell on the planet. Also, it says here that uh, man, I'm gonna have to check this out because this is exactly what I was talking about. It says in the Vulcan Academy murders, we learn about Mabenga's time at the Vulcan Academy Hospital and McCoy's uh, subsequent recruitment of Mabenga for the Enterprise. And then in another book, I think this one's fairly new, Harbinger by David Mack. It says that uh, uh, Mabenga's previous assignment was Starbase 47, also known as Vanguard. I think those books just came out here not not too long ago. So I have to check that out. It also says he's in the book uh, The Klingon Gambit. And I think that, I could be wrong, but I think that's that one book that I read that time. Or no, that was... 
I seem to remember that book sitting on your shelf back in the day. Yeah, no, that it's not the one I was thinking of. The one I was thinking of is the one that on the cover, Spock is playing chess with a Klingon. I think that one's called The Final Reflection. That book sucked hard and was the book that made me quit Star Trek books for a long time. So Klingon Gambit, I'm not sure which one. I think that's one of the earlier books. I don't remember anything about it, though, but... I have to I have to hunt those down. So I probably have the earlier ones. The the Vulcan Academy Murders and the other one's called the Edict Ep- Epidemic. It says that he's in those books. I think I have those. I, I just don't think I've ever read them. I've got a ton of Star Trek books because I keep finding them on the cheap. You know, uh-huh. you go to like like bookstores or flea markets or what. You can find Star Trek books. You yeah. know, Star Trek novels like dirt cheap. They're a dime a dozen. Yeah. yeah. I've picked up a ton of them, but I've read very few of them. I just haven't made the time, but eventually I'll get around to it. Once I get caught up on my Star Wars books, I plan to get start getting caught up on some more of my Star Trek books. But um, that's really about all I've got on this one. I, I was I'm curious also along the same lines as of Mobenga. All the other Klingons, at least to my quick recollection, that we meet in the original series. You know, like Kang and, um, God, now I'm blanking on the names of the other ones. But, you know, the one that was played by Trelane in Trouble with uh-huh. Triples. And then there was the other, there's one other, the guy from... Uh, Wasn't any Koloth? Koloth, yeah. And, uh, you know, those guys, they all pop up again later on. And there's, you know, there's there's books about them. There's comics about them, everything like that. They were in Deep Space Nine. I had forgotten that there were more Klingons you know, besides just those guys. And there's the guy in this one, according to a couple of websites, and, and it may even have been in the Star Trek compendium too, I forget, but they, they name him as Krell. But he's not actually named at all in this episode. They no, he's never just sort him. of the generic Klingon. Yeah. I was, was also thinking this this episode is good, um, would be good um, um, mining ground for John Byrne. The stuff that John Byrne's been doing lately, he could mine a good yeah. story out of this. Well, something this I, episode. I I had it, and now I, I must have changed uh, web pages I was looking at or something. But I was looking at something a little while ago that said that. Uh, let's see if if it's on this page. Yeah, here it is. It says in the comic book The Order of Things, which is part of the Blood Will Tell miniseries, that was one of those IDW miniseries. Uh-huh. It says this story is told from the Klingon point of view. I've I own that series, bought it on the cheap somewhere, but I've never actually sat down and read it. And uh, you know what? I think I picked those up for 50 cents or less at the last one of those Atlanta comic conventions that I went to. You know, just because it looked interesting. It was IDW Star Trek, and so far, that hasn't yeah. steered me wrong. I've enjoyed all of it. So now I have to make it a priority to read that, and I'll report back and let you know uh, you know, how it turns out. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd be interested in that, because that's kind of the, the thing, like you were saying, like John Byrne did that with writing those those Klingon-based Star Trek stories, you know, set in the, uh, in the classic Kirk era. And I loved that stuff, because it really filled in you know, the the Klingon side of a lot of those classic Klingon appearances. And I liked that. You know, you got to see what their motivation was and, and what the what the story was behind their appearances rather than yeah. just, you know, being the, the baddie of the week. You know, there there was actually something behind what they were doing. I, I thought that was pretty cool. 
Well, there would be something. Lastly, the last thing I've got on this one, I thought this was hilarious because I actually had to watch this episode twice because, you know, you and I were going to record this episode a, while well, a ago. couple of weeks ago and then something came up and I wasn't able to make it. So I had to rewatch it today to refresh myself on it. Well, during this second rewatch, it suddenly occurred to me, you know, there's that great exchange between uh, Dr. McCoy and Captain Kirk. Well, McCoy gets really, really pissed at Kirk, you know, because Kirk is is basically, you know, he's setting up like the old Cold War scenario of you uh-huh. know, each side has to keep ramping up their arms race so that there's this balance of power and nobody has the advantage and it's almost a stalemate situation. And, you know, McCoy really gives Kirk a lot of grief about this. And I was watching that, and it was really tickling my brain. I was like, there's something here. There's something in this that's bugging me. But it it took me a long time to figure out what it was, and it suddenly just hit me like a ton of bricks. Remember quite a while back now in, in some of our earlier Star Trek Monthly Mondays, I was reviewing... The Marvel Comics Star Trek series, that that eighteen issue uh, series yeah. that was really pretty bad, yeah, had like gnomes and stuff in it. Space issue, gnomes, space gnomes. Issue ten was that one with a really weird cover. It's uh, the Spock the Barbarian issue, and in that issue, Spock and McCoy. I can't remember if they go there or they wind up maroon there or what the story is, but they go down to this planet. They end up interfering right off the bat. Immediately, they break the prime directive because there's a girl being chased by, like, cavemen or something. And they go to her rescue. Spock gets captured by one faction, and McCoy befriends the other faction. In that story, McCoy literally gives those people, like, weapons because they're just a primitive people. But in order for him to be able to go rescue his friend, Mr. Spock... He actually starts these people on the very path that he was bitching to Kirk about in this entire episode. And at the end of the ep- you know, the end of that issue, I remember you and I talking about this at length about the fact that McCoy, you know, basically gives them fire and then splits, you know? And it's like, you know, for all the grief that Kirk catches for for prime directive violations, yeah. this is a huge one. I mean, this is this is more than just popping in and going, "Oh, you're you're comp- you know, by the way, your god's a computer and taking off." This is coming into a planet, completely destabilizing it and then splitting. And I loved it because it was, I, I loved it because it was bad. You know what I mean? And. When when I thought of that today, I had to go back and, and quickly just like skim back through that issue to make sure I had my facts straight. Sure enough, com- Dr. McCoy did a complete 180 in that issue from his position on, on these sorts of things in this episode. And I, I just got a real kick out of that when I discovered it. Do you remember that issue? Vaguely. <laughs> I don't think I read those. I think I mostly heard you describing them. And the <laughs> I think space you mostly gnomes made. Describe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you really weren't making them sound very desirable for me to read anyway. No. I sort of remember reading them when they came out and going, oh, no, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. To my I was, recollection, after doing that, that breakdown that I did, I think what, it, what was the grand total, like two, maybe three stories that I deemed worth checking out? And the rest of them were like 
garbage. Yeah, they were crap. Yeah, literally, you know, like the art. You know, the art was was good through almost that whole thing. I would say that you know, if, if a you know anybody out there, if you're big on you know really nice comic book art, they're they're generally worth it for the art. But yeah, the stories in those were oh my god, they were stinkers. And that one's that one's stinkeroos. And it had great art. I, I forget off the top of my head who the artist was in the interiors of that issue. The art was actually pretty good in yeah. that story. But Star Wars or Star Wars Star Trek is all story, you know, if you don't exactly. have the story and the characters running right and and that was a perfect example of how they don't have the characters right. Yep. So yeah. I say we fire up the old Star Trek computer right now and figure out what we're going to be watching. Let's do it. Because you had a little idea. I did have a great idea, and as soon as we uh, as soon as we let the computer pick our next episode, I'm going to lay it on the listeners. Okay. Well, what's it say? It says number thirty-two. Thirty-two is. Oh, I just dropped my Oh, getting old. I need to get this computer cross-reference so it actually just spits out. That would be cool. Show. That would be very cool. Number thirty-two is <gasps> the Changeling. Ooh, you like that one? Which one is that? That's the one with uh, Nomad. Oh, Roy Kirk. Roy Kirk. Yeah. Roy Kirk. I like yes. that one. I like that one too. That was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Yeah, it has one of the the most completely ridiculous concepts in all of Star Trek happens in that episode, but I still really like it anyway. So remind me to uh, remind me to bring that up if I if I forget when uh, when we get to our synopsis of that. But uh, you know, like you said, I had an idea. This this literally hit me this this inspiration hit me just as we were sitting down to record this episode i thought you know because i didn't really think i had that much for this uh original series episode and i know i don't have all that much this time around on the comic that we're going to talk about i got to thinking i want to know what the listeners think of the things that we're talking about and since we always let people know ahead of time what we're going to be talking about the next episode, you know, as far as what episodes of both the original series and next gen that we're going to cover, plus the comic that we're going to cover. Why don't you guys start writing in ahead of time? Let us know what you think, you know, what your thoughts and opinions and, and feelings are on the things that we're going to talk about. And after Chris and I are done discussing, you know, what we think of a particular episode or comic or whatever, We'll read what you guys have written in about it. So, for example, you know, our next time around, we're going to be talking about the Changeling. Write in. Let us know. What's your, you know, what do you think about the Changeling? What, what's your uh, story on it? You know, do you remember watching it when you were a kid? You know, anything like that? Does it hold any special memories for you? Is it an episode you absolutely hate? You know, is there something, you know, really cool or really stupid or really awesome that you want to point out about the episode? You know, a little bit of trivia, that sort of thing. Right in, let us know. We'd love to read that stuff on the air. So, yep, that's my keen idea. We'll see how that uh, pans out. Yep. So, get off your asses and do it. You know what? You don't even have to get off your asses to do it. So, just <laughs> move your hand with the with the mouse and do it. All right. So, we'll be right back with 
some more of the original cast of Star Trek in comic book form with Star Trek DC numbers, what is it, 17? 17! And now, Two True Freaks present another insanely inappropriate commercial! The AIDS diet plan helped me get back into a size 6. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me lose the weight and has nothing in it that could make me nervous. Question. Why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight safely and effectively. Use only as directed. Log Stardate 2453.87. The crisis was averted. Our craving satisfied. The chicken was excellent. Take us out of here, Mr. Sulu. Walk back to two. Thank you. Took my fries. Hello, welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 24, and in this segment, we are going to be taking a look at DC Comics Star Trek number 17, and for the synopsis on this one and uh, all the uh, hard facts on it, I'm going to turn you over to Chris Honeywell. Hello. This month, we have Star Trek (laughs) DC number 17, as Scott just said. This one, oh my god, expensive. Costs a whole 95 cents in August of 1985. You must have a Canadian copy or Do something. I? Mine I, says 75 I'm cents. I'm looking at mine off a of CBR that I have just handily uh, up on my. And I got the actual paper issue in front of me. So this has a. a uh, I love this cover by uh, Tom Sutton and Klaus Janssen, one of my favorite inkers in certain contexts. And this is one of them. I just. I, I like how this looks. Sulu, Uhura, and Bearclaw on their own! Hope Kirk's got some replacements ready. You know, that's rude. That's just a mean, <laughs> mean-spirited cover. I'm sorry. Really, those? what is it saying? That Sulu and Uhura are incompetent and they're gonna die? Bearclaw, whatever, you know. But really? You know, and just so cavalierly. Hey, your beloved characters are gonna... I hope Kirk has some replacements! <laughs> Did you notice that uh, on the extreme right, behind the uh, the head bad guy's butt, that woman looks like Jocasta from the Avengers, doesn't she? Oh, the lady, the lady robot character. Yes, <laughs> yes, just sort of just hanging noticed. out, just sort of hanging out in the background. That might be the that might be the Klaus Jansen effect happening there. So, uh-huh. so uh, on the interior, we've got L. B. Kellogg as a writer and. Uh, you know this the the same crew of artists Sutton and Villagran for 
for your artists and John Costanza's letter and Michelle Wolfman is colorist and Marv Wolfman is editor so I think what L.B. Kellogg didn't write last issue did he? No, up to this point it's been uh, I want to say Mike W. Barr Yeah, you're right, is that right? it has been Mike yeah. W. Barr that's right so th- this yeah. is the only difference in, in uh, setup, but I, I like the writing in this one. It's called The D'Artagnan 3. We start out with um, Sulu has the Khan of the Excelsior, and they're chasing down a smuggler ship that, that's been firing at them and trying to evade them, and uh, Sulu uh, disables a small little ship. It's called the D'Artagnan. So uh, after they pull it in, they find that there's... Uh, Two pirates are smuggling dilithium crystals, but they won't say where it is from and where they're going, or you know, they're 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 basically you know uh, invoking their right to remain silent. So after Kirk and McCoy employ a humorous but unethical trick involving a fake truth serum, they uh, find out that the crystals were from the planet Cetus Five and are being channeled through space station Aurelius One and uh, a man named. Kabaka Buganda, another super African name. Then we'll sort of link it back to the doctor in the last one, you know. I, every time I see Kabaka, I think of of stupid Madonna and, you know, Kabbalah going, it's not Kabbalah, it's Kabbalah. So every time I see him, I think Kabaka. And since it's a comic, I don't know how I think it's of that song Cucaracha I, is what I think Should I pronounce of. him Kabaka, like Kabbalah, or should I call him Kabaka? Kabaka. I'm sticking with Kabaka. Kabaka Buganda. Say that five times fast. Don't. It's just a, a manner of speech. And now, just to be a nitpicky bastard, the name of that ship wasn't D'Artagnan until uh, a little bit later in the story when, when they... Uh, retrofit it for their when little they, mission they it's, take it's it Sulu that names it that because he's a big freak about the, the three musketeers he's a big on those swords yeah <laughs> anyway I, I didn't mean that either I did not mean that that was just pure luck oh my so anyway so you know so they're they're bringing the they're, they're channeling these crystals through space station Aurelius 1 and Kabaka Buganda who turns out and all of space was coincidentally an old flame of Lieutenant Uhura's. So Kirk sets a plan where he uh, heads Excelsior towards Cetus 5 and sends a crew to investigate Kabaka. <laughs> now it sounds like Chewbacca. Sulu gets command of the ship, which he names the D'Artagnan at that point because he's such a fan of the Three Musketeers, and uh, has Bear Claws, his first officer, and Uhura on board too because she's the liaison with Kabaka. And uh, so they, uh, of course, Scotty soups up and retrofits the the small craft so it's really speedy and has some weapons and is uh, ready to kick some ass. So they arrive at the space station, and uh, Uhura and Kabaka make goo-goo eyes at each other, while Bearclaw and Sulu discover that Kabaka is dealing in slaves. And uh, they don't like that at all. But at the same time, Kabaka discovers that they are from Starfleet, and he's pretty pissed. He's pissed at them, and Uhura's pissed at him for being a slave trader. But too late, after... You know, Sulu puts a hurtin' on Kabaka. 
They escape, but with basically the whole smuggler's fleet and Kabaka's command ship, you know, chasing after him. Meanwhile, Kirk's, you know, finds Setus V, a dried-up water world, is now a slave-run dilithium crystal mine. Uh, the planet's inhabitants have traded mining rights for water because, you know, they just have a little bit of, little pool of water that they're living in, apparently, and they're these <laughs> sort of fish creatures. So, um, so Kirk uh, basically frees the slaves and promises the fish creatures the world, you know, and that Starfleet will help them get some water. So uh, Sulu and crew decide to take a new tactic besides running away from from uh, this whole fleet of smugglers, and they turn around and attack the fleet and disable a bunch of ships at the beginning and sort of use those ships to hide behind as shields until they get a chance to close into Kabaka's freighter. Once they get close enough, Sulu sort of sacrifices his ship and at the last second, you know, beams beams them into the, the, the Kabaka's ship's hold. And uh, down in the hold, they find a whole bunch of slaves, which, of course, they, they free. And together, they all take over the ship. And uh, they return, you know, to the Excelsior in victory in a, in a bigger ship than they left with and uh, in a very Kirk-like move. So uh, Sulu has sort of proven himself to be a sort of little mini Kirk who's, who's able to take command and has learned his lessons from the great James T. And uh, that's issue number 17. Well done, the sir. The well three. I think your synopsis was actually better than the issue itself. Not that I didn't like this one, but it, I don't know. What do you think? I, I thought it was kind of... It was okay. Eh. I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was a pretty... I, I there, there were some things I really liked about it. There there were some very oh, okay. Star Trek-y things about it. Like, I loved the whole, um, you know, I loved the whole thing of, you know, Sulu wants, you know, playing on Sulu wants his command. And, right. and it starts out with Sulu's chasing down the ship. He's in the swing of it. He's loving it. He's sitting in the captain's right. chair. He's like, all right, do this, do this, do this. All right, shoot him in the engine. Kirk walks in and Sulu's just like, ah, oh, fuck, you know, uh. <laughs> Just when I, you know, just when it's getting fun, here he comes, you know. You know, Kirk's coming out of the toilet, like, tucking in his shirt, just like, what's going on? And and Kirk is really kind of cool and just goes, okay, good, carry on, you know. And and uh, sort of gets a little update and lets, lets Sulu sort of finish off what he was doing. And then, you know, throws some mortars around. But he lets Sulu sit in the captain's chair, you know. He's, he's, he's very professional about it because, hey... He's got a ship now, you know, he can share it a little bit, especially with his old pal Sulu. And, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> this, I mean, Kirk barks out a couple orders and then Sulu says, aye, aye, sir. And then, you know, he's like, Sulu, you have the count. He's like, only temporarily, only temporarily. <clears throat> I really like the fact, you know, of course, nobody had any clue what was going to happen, you know, way on down the road in, in several more movies. Right. But, I, I looked at this issue as a nice bit of foreshadow. Yeah. Be- because, of course, the Excelsior was, you know, would eventually be Sulu's ship. Yeah. You know, this would be Sulu's command. So I liked that. I thought that was really well, cool. Well, also, I mean, it's, it's, um, shit, I forgot completely what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I can. I can. I completely. Complete. Oh well, you know, there's. Oh, oh, I know what I was gonna say. Um, there's, there's just that character shade that that Sulu's always wanted his own command and stuff, which I really liked. I, I don't know if I think it really started from Mirror Mirror, because the evil Sulu was hell. You know, the evil Sulu was hell bent to be, you know, to take out Kirk. He was the he was the oh, one yeah. right on his heels. So he was, you know. The super crazy version of regular Sulu, but Sulu still, you know, you see a little a mild this ver, you know, the real universe version of Sulu where he doesn't hate Kirk over it, but he's just like, uh, I want to be, you know, he wants to be captain, he wants it someday, he wants it really bad, and I and right. that scene is, I thought in in two pages was just very good at communicating that, and then of course. It's followed up by the stupidest fucking parrot creature that even goes, rights, yes, rights, you know, and it's like, okay, so you have a parrot creature. Would he really be like Polly, Lo- Polly wants a cracker? Talk, talk, chip, we'll talk. What the fuck? Pre- who's a pretty boy? Who's a pretty boy? <laughs> no truth serum. <laughs> who's a pretty boy? Cracker, cracker. What the fuck? <laughs> I do like the panel, though. Let's see. It's the fourth panel down on that page of McCoy whipping up the truth serum. Yeah. That's one sinister he's, evil scientist look on his face right there. I he love and Kirk it. are both basically like they're, it's like an episode of Jackass. They're both barely able to contain themselves from laughing over the whole situation. <laughs> plus, they probably can't, plus, McCoy probably can't wait to fucking slug down the truth serum at the end of it, you know? I think McCoy is it's pretty well established that McCoy McCoy likes himself some truth serum now and then. Now I like that you breezed over the the point the part on page five. This, this was the groaner part of the issue for me. Ahura's walking down the hallway. I thought hallway. it was totally unnecessary to the yeah. synopsis, so I didn't even bother oh to mention it. God. We can mention it here, but it was totally unnecessary yeah. to the. Yeah, it's it's not relevant to this story other than, you know... It shows that Ahura would like to have a boyfriend. She's slightly horny or something, you know? (laughs) Well, it's that, but it also adds to this this subplot with with these characters. But uh, Bryce stops her in the hallway and says uh, she wants her advice as her commanding officer and as a woman... And uh, she basically I was asked we were going to get some for... Bryce on her action going here because <laughs> they're talking about pushing the limits and stuff, you know. And... Oh, there you go. Well, you know, then she she's basically seeking Uhura's permission to chase Kona, and you know, Uhura says basically, "Yeah, go for it." And then she also adds, "That is within the limits of your responsibilities to this ship, Mister." And, and and Bryce even repeats within the limits. And then immediately after she thanks Ahura, she goes over and she's like, Konam, can we talk? And I'm thinking, Yoo-hoo, you know, Konam! on duty, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or maybe he's on duty. I don't know. It just, the, the way the scene is set up, it just kind of makes it look like she's going over to bother him while he's working. That was just kind yeah, of yeah. the impression I oh, man, I think thing. he's just hanging out with the guys, like having a sandwich, and I'm they're thinking. like, oh, oh. Oi, Konam, go on. Yeah, you're a real Klingon guy. Yeah. <laughs> go, but go, also, go what is up with those, like, 
like sign language that she's making in that second panel right there. What what is she doing with her hands in that? I one think she's part? maybe supposed to be nervous and like trying to talk and twiddling her fingers around or something. I don't know what that's supposed uh, to be. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah, and then and then Nahura sort of muses, you know, ah, they're so lucky, you know, to to have each other type of thing as she stares off into space wistfully. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. And then we find and out that, that that she was once in love with Billy D. Williams. Billy D. Williams I think he looks like the black Zardoz myself. Oh, you mean Don't Sean you Connery think- and Zardoz? Yeah, well, Zardoz was a big stone head that with just like a big open mouth. That oh, okay. you, you're yeah, talking Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. Yeah, he does. It's the mustache, yeah. man. That's yeah. a total shot. That, but it's a it's sort of a Billy D. Williams too. Billy His hair Williams. isn't curly yeah. enough for it's. They also in this picture more they give him sort of you know, Caucasian straight hair. You know. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, he looks. Yeah, he's is sort of a. He's got a little Tom Selleck in there too working. <laughs> around the edges, you know. Yeah, he does. But uh now I I'm sorry. I you know the art the art's not very good in this, but it's not very, you know, it's not horrible either. But I don't see a a single panel in this so far where I think Ohura looks like Nichelle Nichols. I almost wonder if maybe they didn't they didn't have permission to use her likeness or something. Because I just don't think she looks like her in any of these panels. Sometimes they get her proportion right. Because, you know, Nichelle Nichols is is a short lady. And, right. and, and I was sort of looking at that in here. And sometimes sometimes when the, they'll have her, they'll have her proportion. You'll see her and you'll go, okay, yeah, all right, she is a, a, a smaller type of lady here. But, yeah, sometimes I, I think they're drawing her in a – I think people think of – Nichelle Nichols and Uhura as being more sex bomby than she really was because of her little right. outfit on the original series. But, you know, she wasn't really like, you know, like cleavage. The only time really when she was trying to like, you know, get somebody's attention for Kirk to knock him out or something. But, you know, she wasn't really a sort of cleavage you know, tight-fitting clothes sort of lady. She was sort of a just sort of professional sort of lady you know what i mean i don't know right yeah you know and she's drawn in a little more of with a little more of the um oh uh shall we say um oh what was his name from the old star wars author the way he used to draw princess leia oh uh uh, carmine Carmine yeah Yeah. there's a little of that going in there where they're where they're hot seeing her up a little bit you know (laughs) <laughs> and and making her look more, you know, I don't know, like, you know, a sexy actress in a movie with big fluffy hair and stuff. But when you get to page nine, when she first, you know, runs into Kabaka, you know, you see she's a she's a good head, more than a head shorter than him. She's, she's right. The, and, and that's that's about right, you know. And Sulu should just be just a little bit taller than her because Sulu is kind of short too. So he's short. Yeah, he is very short. So they they've got some of those proportions right. There's a there's some serious like weird Mad Max. I think um, there's some Mad Max influence going on here with the with the group of uh, smugglers because they all have that sort of you know scruffy hippie barbarian look to them. You know. 
Well, I was thinking that, you know, if you want some serious job security yeah. in this tough economic situation that we're in, yeah. hey, man, the Hells Angels apparently are still going to be around in the 23rd century. Because exactly. that next to last panel on page 12, the guy's jacket does say angels on oh, it. Oh, does it? And he looks like, yeah, he looks like a Hells Angel guy. Yeah, that guy standing right there on the extreme uh, left of the panel, the next to last panel on page 12, oh, on page his 12. jacket does say angel, angels on it. Oh, you are correct. <laughs> it's like, like a Sergeant Pepper's Hell's Angels outfit. On, <laughs> on page 10, it's good to see that the Jawas are helping out with the mining, uh, with the mining work there. <laughs> Oh, you're right. That's a sand. They got crawler a sand crawler in the background there. Maybe oh, they rented awesome. one out from the Jawas, you know. To... I totally missed that. You're right. Oh my god, it is. It's a Jawas sand crawler. That's awesome. See Kirk beating the shit out of some Jawas. <laughs> Love that. What? What? Houdini? Houdini? Prah! <laughs> I want to see. Ah, get his outfit. We're gonna dress up the... like them. Do the two-footed kick to a Jawas. <laughs> <I don't expect. laughs> I love that two-footed <laughs> kick, man. He did one in uh, in uh, that episode we just I talked know, about. I know, I know. That was great. <laughs> falls right on his ass, but it's great. He always He's falls on his ass. And I always feel sorry for the poor other guy who's got to sit there with the rope tied to him so they can yank him away when Shatner jumps up and ineffectually presses, <laughs> basically is ineffectually just pressing his his feet with no inertia up against someone's chest and then somebody's off screen yanking them in a harness so it looks like Shatner just did this powerful jackhammer kick to their chest compressing their lungs and shattering their ribs I take it back on page 13 the uh, midway down the the page there there's a shot of Ahura Kind of like looking back over her shoulder as Kabaka leaves the room. Yeah. That looks like Nishan. Well, that has that has the look of something taken from a a frame of a movie or something. Photo referenced, yeah, yeah, it, very it, much it, so. It, it, it totally does the way it's lit and everything. Yep. But um. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love the fish people too. The fish, the fish people. people. And, and, like, okay, whatever, their planet's dried out. It looks like there's just, like, a little pool, basically, with, like, the rest of the, half of their c- c- civilizations out of water. And they're, and they're like, coming out with, the, with their, you know, of course, spacesuits with water in them. And they look like they're, they're like, holding their hands out, like, <laughs> if they were laying on the beach and flopping around, <laughs> exactly. this would be the most awesome Star Trek issue ever. I would laugh my ass and, off. And here's an- because it does that little pool where the where their city is mostly exposed reminds me of like in the summertime when when the Black River would dry yeah. up over by the dam, and you'd see all the fish like in a little tiny tiny puddle gasping yeah. and trying to survive. That's what these poor fish people are doing. And and Kirk, of course, does his super irresponsible Kirk thing, saying, "Oh, don't water. You need water. Don't worry." The Starfleet and you know Savick's going, "Uh, Captain, oh, we don't know. I don't know how we're gonna do." It. And he's just like, "That's for you to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> don't worry, yeah, exactly. fish people." <laughs> You know, and he tosses her a clipboard or whatever. It is just like, get to work, number cruncher. <laughs> Come on, big brain. A, dif- a difficult scientific puzzle, Mr. Sevick. I'm putting you in charge of solving Meanwhile, it. Meanwhile, <laughs> Kirk's like lifting up the top of their, their hood and dropping fish food in, you know, and they're like. 
know. If you hold up a mirror, they'll beat their heads against it, too. The scene I really want to see is the relocation of these people, where you get a Starfleet vessel to come down out of orbit with a giant net like they use at Walmart when you pick out your goldfish. Well, these guys are almost like, this is almost like the, I think this is the original homeworld of the sea monkeys. And the, you see, I mean, it's obviously sea monkey world there, you know. <laughs> sea monkey world. <laughs> no, I'm serious. How awesome would that be to see, like, the Enterprise with a giant fish net coming out of the bottom of it, the little scooper net? Well, that's what I'm just thinking. I'm thinking they're having a big fish fry up on the Enterprise. Kirk's like, shut up, Savick. Yeah, we'll take care of you. Oh, you, you, you can just you can just take Photoshop. a phaser, you can take a phaser and shoot them right inside that their their little spacesuits and boil them right inside there. They're delicious. Need, They're in salt water you need and everything. To Photoshop that panel of Kirk calling up on his communicator. He's calling up Scotty to make sure they've got enough tartar. Yeah, sauce. tartar sauce and lemons. Get some tartar sauce and lemons ready, Scotty. What are tartar sauce and lemons, Kirk? Oh, it's it's what we call water on our planet. <laughs> oh, don't don't worry about it. It's not important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've got a great person that we want you to meet up there. His name's Arthur Treacher. <laughs> and his friend Long John Long Silver. John Silver. You ever heard the story of Long John Silver? Well, you're going to hear it tonight. <laughs> well, you'll hear it over dinner. <laughs> I, you know, I honestly did pretty much like this story, though, but there was one Starfleet seriously... has this book right here. It's called To Serve Fish. You guys, <laughs> you guys can read it on the way to your new home world. You know, besides the part with Conom the pussified Klingon, who, who is I, just, I, a, just basically a little blob in this anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm just tired. Yeah, I'm glad he didn't have much of a of a of a cameo or anything in this. Much to do in this one, but there's that moment where. You know, like you say, Sulu has to sacrifice his ship, the, the D'Artagnan, to pull off this little scheme that they're going to do, which is basically they, they, you know, they draw fire, they get in close enough to where they can beam over to, uh, what the hell was the guy's name, ba- Bacharach or whatever the hell his name was, over Kabalaka, to his ship. Luka, 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 luka. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> and then they destroy luka, luka, the D'Artagnan. Luka, luka, and we get this sh- this shot of... Uh, Sulu, and he gets all melodramatic on us. He said, the D'Artagnan, it's gone. It's a dark... My first command gone. And I'm thinking, come on, dude. It was a, it was, you know, it was a shuttlecraft mission. Exactly. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. And then uh, Ohura says, Sulu, I'm sorry. I know it meant a great deal to you. And he says, what was it that Captain Kirk said? And he's having a flashback to when they were all standing on the Genesis planet watching the Enterprise burn up in the atmosphere. And Sulu says, what was it that Captain Kirk said? It did mean a great deal, but at least now we have a fighting chance for life. When he says that, when he says, what was it that Captain Kirk said? She should go, um, I don't know, dude, because I wasn't there. Yeah. Because she wasn't on the Genesis planet with them. I haven't had a chance to watch that that episode yet. Uh, uh, No, that's what what she should have said. Oh, yeah, I know. (laughs) Oh, man. Remember, Roddenberry wouldn't pay me enough, fucker. <laughs> yeah, she sat out like most of that movie. But uh, that's about all I got on this one. Yeah, it, it's not bad. It's got a lot of action toward the end where they they stage their little uh, slave rebellion and all that. You know, speaking of that, 
maybe this was too obvious or too cliched or something that they didn't feel comfortable tackling, but I feel like they missed something here that really should have come up in this, which was Ahura calling out uh, Buganda or whatever the hell this guy's name was about the fact that he's trading in slaves and he's a black man. You know, as a black woman, well, I think because I feel like she should call him out on well, that. because I think that's a tr- that's just so twentieth century of you, though, Scott. I mean, that's ancient, ancient, ancient history to them. You know, that's like right. You know, that's like I don't. You know, I don't even know what we could compare that to with our. You know, ourselves. But if we go back that that's far true. back in time and try to compare it with, you know, well. You know, I, I hope that that day comes. Then I hope that we get to that point where where one day things like that. Um, right. Well, I'm thinking there might be like aren't, three. Aren't such a, there might be three or four more pertinent slavery stories that happened in between our slavery story and this one. You know, there might be more stories where uh, the Federation yeah. ended up freeing slaves of this other planet, and, right. and you know, and that's this, and that would be what the you know what people it's like hitler you know hitler was the last you know like super demagogue you know to like take his armies over the whole world and stuff so everybody equates that with hitler you know they're not like you know napoleon you know people right so that's what i that's what i'm thinking yeah that's a good point because eventually we would see uh but you know guys like like Colonel Green and stuff mentioned in the same breath with with guys like Hitler and stuff. So yeah, but from I, a story I, I point of view, that. though, Star Trek is notorious for transposing twentieth century stuff on there. So it wouldn't have been out of place, and it wouldn't have been inappropriate in right. a Star Trek con- context for her to, you know, to be just like you know, remember, you know, you you were descended from people who were slaves once too. But when you think about right. it. I guess if you go back far enough, you could probably say almost everybody was descended from a slave at some point or some sort of, you know, horrible situation. You know, if you follow your family line back far enough, somebody was enslaved or... Hell, I've had enough jobs that I think qualified as white slavery, so, you know. Yeah, the the oppressed worker. Yes. Speaking of jobs and oppressed workers, Scott... Just as this is our first opportunity, now that you mention it, congratulations, congratulations. I know a lot of people maybe know it from Facebook or, or being on the, um, on our forum, but um, maybe you don't know. It's it's official. Scott was hired by the Walt Disney Corporation. He is a you are what what are, it's called a cast member. You're a cast cast member. member. Of, I will yes, I will be a cast as you're. Let's see. When is this one going up? October, October 11th. 11th. Yeah, in a few a few days from now, about a week from when this episode goes up, I will be uh, going to fill out my new hire paperwork, and then uh, about a week after that, I will be uh, I will actually be starting. I will go to the class that they call traditions and take my traditions class and everything, and then that will be my official start. No, I imagine since you're member. starting at Disney, uh-huh. you're starting like at the very bottom, like cleaning garbage cans or something like that. <laughs> no, th- that's what I feared I would be doing, honestly. Because, well, let me let me tell you the story. Because I, I, this is actually pretty funny. I think is that um, I applied a couple of times to the company, 
And I applied the first time strictly for one position because that was the website I went through only allowed you to apply for one position. I forget exactly what they called the position, but it was basically concierge for the resorts is what I was applying for. Never heard anything. And then somebody told me a little secret, which was, you know what? You can actually apply as many times as you want to, and you can even apply through other websites that will allow you to apply for more than one job. All you have to do is just change your email that you want them to respond to, and you can basically apply all you want, but then they caution, you know, don't abuse it, though, you know, because then you'll get flagged. So I went in again through a different website, and this one did allow me to apply for up to three different positions. So I applied again for basically what was a concierge-type position. And then because it allowed me a couple other ones, I went with basically the other two best-paying jobs, you know, that I felt qualified for. One of them was security because, you know, I was, uh, you know, in another lifetime, uh, I was a, a security policeman in the Air Force. And then lastly, because I was going on someone's suggestion, they said, you know, go for broke. If you really don't care what you're doing, you're you're just intent. You want a job there, and you 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 don't mind starting at the absolute bottom. They said apply for custodial. They said it's not the best job, but it's almost a guaranteed foot in the door if you flag custodial on your application. Somebody's going to look at it. So you know, I went through a very long application process, which I won't bore you with. Basically, what happened was I had worked for Disney a long time ago. And basically forgot that I did because it was a Disney store position almost 10 years ago. And I worked there very briefly as, you know, just part-time help. Well, when I separated from, from that place, something was put into my file that fouled everything up with this new application process to work at Disney World. And so I had to get all that cleared up before everything could go forward with this new application. So long story short, it took a long time to go through, but it did finally go through. And so the the fellow from uh, casting is what they call it. Walt Disney World Casting calls me up and gives me the good news in a message and said, you know, let's keep playing phone tag until we can finally meet up with each other. And I left him a message telling him when I was going to be around and everything, hoping I would hear from him before the weekend so I didn't have to sweat through a whole weekend of wondering, you know, what is this position that they might be interested in me for? Calls me first thing the next morning. It was a Friday. Says, basically, you know, no preamble whatsoever. You're hired. Now let's discuss what you're hired for. And I'm sweating at this point thinking, this is awesome. You know, I've got a job, but what is the job going to be? Because I had long joked that I would scrub toilets to work at Walt Disney World, which is true. I would I scrub would. toilets at Disney World. But I, I wouldn't, I don't want to do that if there's something else I've I could do. I've scrubbed toilets but in I really would. shitty places, so Disney World <laughs> would be a dream, you know? Right. So he says to me, um, you know, so after we get to that point, he says, So, I see on your application that you're interested in custodial. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know? And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, I am. And I'm trying to think of, you know, how, <laughs> how can I possibly spin this yeah. yeah, a different way, you know? So we're, we're talking, and it, I basically had an opening to kind of go for broke in this situation. And I, I just said, well, you know, it's not my first choice, but I'm interested. I said, you know, as I told you before, 
I want a foot in the door. You know, that's all I'm, that's the only opportunity I'm asking for. I simply want a foot in the door to prove myself and prove my worth to the company, prove my enthusiasm and, and show what I can do. So I said, I, you know, I literally am, am interested in anything. I'm not going to turn anything down. And so then, you know, the conversation kind of, kind of changed and for a little bit I started to feel like man I really shot myself in the foot I shouldn't have said anything I should have just ran with whatever he offered me but as he talked he explained that you know that was cool that's the that's very honorable and and he really liked that response however you know in the interest of you know that they invest a lot of money in their training and in the people that they hire and they really want to maintain a good record with the people that they hire as far as retention rates and things like that and they promote from within all these sorts of things he wanted to match me to something that i would enjoy right out of the gate he didn't just want to give me a job he wanted to give me something matched specifically to my interests so I thought, yeah, well, that's awesome. You know, that's great. However, he's looking down the list and going, um, well, unfortunately, I don't have anything for you. He's like, uh, well, he goes, I'm sorry. He goes, it looks like I'm just going to have to put you on a waiting list at this point. I'm thinking, shit, you know, I've, I've totally blown my, my big chance here. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. He goes, something just popped up. He goes, somebody just posted something. And he goes in and he looks at He's it. He's just toying uh, with you at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, it? And it's, yeah, in retrospect, that's what I think he was doing. And, and he goes, uh, he goes, hmm, this is interesting. He goes, uh, this sounds really good. He goes, uh, but do you have a fear of heights? And I do a little bit, not, not real severe, but of course, the higher you get, the, the little more weirded out I can get. And he goes, uh, and I said, well, it, it depends on the height, I guess, but no, not, I guess not really. And he goes, uh, well, this would be about 75 feet, uh, but in a seated position. And I'm thinking, what, what in the world could this, you know, is it like a, a cherry picker or something? You know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what in the world. It could this be could almost be. anything at this point in Disney, yeah. in the context of Disney World. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to think of attractions and places around the park and like maybe nighttime duties or yeah, something. You could be trimming trees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Is was, you know, yeah, exactly. Trimming trees or, or you know something like that. You know, uh, changing light bulbs or something. And uh, and I was like, uh, I don't. I said, I, it sounds interesting. I said, what what is that exactly? And he goes, uh, How would you feel about being a monorail operator? And it's like somebody. You know, I, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. It's like somebody basically saying, uh, how would you like to be a lottery winner? You know, it's like, are, are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I flipped. I completely flipped out. How would you like and a course, million dollars in a harem? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And, <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing. The that correct answer, me, Scott, is I'll take the million dollars, but I'm married. Nah, we'll talk. We'll talk. You know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself. You know, while while we're talking and, and everything, the the big thing that occurs to me in the back of my mind is how awesome is this going to make me in the eye of my kids? You know, for one thing, you know, just the fact of you know dad working at Disney World and, and all that sort of thing and having such a cool job. But Logan 
is just a total freak for the monorail. You know, I mean, it's it's his favorite thing there, which is you know so ironic, seeing as how the monorail is completely free. Anybody can go ride the monorail anytime. You know, but still, you know that that's his favorite thing there. That's that's just that thing that that just fires his child imagination is the monorail. And, you know, he's got a nice little collection of things all based on it. You know, posters and T-shirts and pins and all these different things all about the monorail. And now I'm going to go drive it, you know. And it's just, I mean, it's so surreal. He can go me. up and, you know, just, he, he'll probably be able to go up in the front and ride the monorail with you, right? Or like... Eventually, eventually, when they bring, yeah, when they bring that back, because at the moment that's that's been discontinued. Yeah. But eventually, I'm sure that, that that'll come around again, and yeah, I, I can't wait for that's that. Amazing. You know, it, it, you know, if I'm still doing that by that point, because to me, the nice thing is, is that you know, you've literally got uh, a, a world. You know, not to draw a pun, but you've literally got a world of opportunities working there because any job in the world that you can imagine somebody doing somebody at Walt Disney World does that job yeah. because it's you know it's a city unto right. itself right you it's know its own there, universe ev- it has everything that every city has plus and like it's like it's like hollywood basically i would right. say it would be like mm-hmm. hollywood in the surrounding areas you know it's it's right. just got yeah but I mean, you know, computer programmers, carpenters, uh, auto mechanics, gardeners, uh, gardeners, yeah, you know, cooks, chefs, servers, um, painters, sculptors, artists, you know, any job you can possibly think of, somebody there does yep. it. There's a department for that sort of thing. So, you know, me being something of a of a jack of all trades. You know, I, I just look at it as you know, this is the this is the perfect opportunity. Well, you it, might be you know, able to you might be able to learn all you know. You might be able to bump around all kinds of places and learn all kinds I of crazy to. stuff. You know, that would be. I plan to. I would love to do that. Just as my own perspective on this, as my Chris Honeywell, exp- you know, when I heard about this, it's funny. I ran downstairs and. You know, I was so excited about it, but, you know, who do I tell I'm here in Rochester? I'd run, and my roommate hears the whole drama of what goes on in Two True Freaks, so I'm like, you know, Scott Gardner got a job at Disney, and she's like, oh, and usually she just sort of tunes out what I'm jabbering on about, because it's usually something about Star Wars or something, she turns around, she goes, oh, that's great, what did he get? And I said, monorail driver. And she instantly, like, choked up and teared up. She goes, that's the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> and, she, and she was actually choked up because she was just, it's just so unbelievable. But I'll tell you this. When you showed up at the door at Disney, they wanted to hire you from that. Dude, you're just built for working at, at, at Walt Disney. You're going to be, like, the ideal employee. And they probably spotted that a mile off, you know? Probably the same way that that Mark Buttrick, when he started working there, they were probably like, "Yep, this guy fits right in," you know. And I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said well, to me in thirty abs- years of friendship. <laughs> I think that was the true. nicest thing you've ever it's said. It's absolutely. That's why they were messing with you so much because they were just like they wanted to hear you sweat a little bit because they were. I, I mean, I bet you they're they're psyched to have you. They they should be psyched to have you as part of Disney because. I, in all the years I've known you, 
you've been one of my friends amongst many friends but you've been one of them who's had that trail of just horrible jobs i remember when you lived here in <laughs> rochester and i'd go to visit you to at, at uh what was it saturday matinee at the yeah at the at the mall and like mm-hmm. that that mall is a graveyard now but at that time that was when it first opened and it was pretty busy and Watching you in your and you know in in the outfit that you had to wear for there and just dealing tuxedo yeah yeah you and dealing with the, just the idiots that were coming in and like there was a literally a scene like out of Clerks with somebody going where are the Star Trek videos and you were standing right next to a giant standee <laughs> of Spock <laughs> cradling dozens of Star Trek videos in his arms with the words in vibrant you know rainbow letters above him star trek videos here <laughs> you know that sort of thing and you were so nice to just walk her you walked her around and brought her right back to it so you didn't have to go well they're right here in front of you you fucking moron you know so i thought that was very nice of you but jesus what a shitty job and you know it's just uh, ne- never hearing uh, never ever hearing scott gardner say well i'm off to work <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, it was more like a falling down, that movie falling down situation where it's just like, well, another day at work. Time to go in. Well, what's funny, though, is it, you know, in my mind now, you know, looking back, that was like one of the best jobs I ever had because, you know, you, you always kind of have a rose colored tint to some things like that, especially if you're not, you know, digging ditches or something like that. But. Man, you know, I, I'm looking at this as the payoff for being yeah. very patient and very tolerant <laughs> yeah. for the la- at least the last several years because the last several jobs I've had prior to this have been just well excruciating. And you're, you know, now you're going to hate me for this comparison. <laughs> After hearing the best thing you've ever heard from me, you're going to hate me from this. But it's only one. I'm only comparing you in one small aspect. At job wise, you're like my friend John Sparacino where when you're at a job incompetence drives you fucking berserk when you're working with somebody and especially somebody who's higher up than you that's like really bossy and they're totally stupid and incompetent will drive you out of your fucking mind and the good thing about Disney is there's gonna be people like that there you know there's gonna be some corporate dicks you know somewhere or somebody who's like abuse, you know, is kind of a jerk with their power, or whatever. There's going to be someone who's kind of lazy or whatever, but probably not to nearly the extent in the normal world, you know. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you're going to be at Disney, so you. I, I just have a feeling you'll be able to let a lot of shit just like flop flop right off your back because you're like you know in 10 seconds i'm going to be walking into the magic kingdom so screw you buddy exactly um and and i know you also like do your job like 150 percent so that's going to that's going to go very far i think in disney i think that i i don't know i think you have a bright future ahead there and i'm i just can't believe it and it's cursing us right now, and I w- sort of was talking about how I wouldn't do this. But, dude, you and I are, like, at the pinnacle of our lives right now. I love it. Or at least, I don't want to say the <laughs> pinnacle, because the pinnacle's right before <laughs> it drops down. 
but we're at a nice, satisfying point in our lives where shit's starting to happen the way that we would like it to happen, you know? Oh, yeah. Which is really fucking funny because this is, like, some of the, like, I would say economic, you know, climate in America where that would be, you know, really tough. And I think maybe that's the advantage that we've been, like, in the job force for 25 years now. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of slugging it out and getting our our footing where uh, where we wanted to be, but I mean, uh, with with um with both of us, it was just sort of it was a sort of a chance, you know, <laughs> chance occur, you know, just sort of occurrences out of our control that, and uh, and here we are. So awesome, man! I am really psyched. I'm, I'm super it. psyched I, for you, man. I can't, but you, you, you know, it must be just like, I mean, the whole family must be just, it's just a, it's just the perfect thing to cap off that you guys had to, you know, pick up everything, you know, pick up everything and move away from where you've been living, you know, your kid, the, basically your kid's whole life. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, for you, you've, you, 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 and I imagine your wife too have moved around a little bit and, and whatever but for the kids they had to oh, pick yeah. up everything and go to a totally new environment and and for this to happen is just like perfect it makes it all it, it makes it all make sense you know i'm hoping so i'm really hoping so because that that's been a serious concern of mine is you know the kids because on the one hand you know, I, I, I'm very, I very much hold to the old adage of you know kids are resilient, kids bounce back, but. You know, on the other hand, you know they they have been through a lot. You know, they have moved around a lot, especially Scotty, you know, my oldest. He he's moved around a lot, and you know, when we were in the last house, you know, in Georgia, you know, when we got into that house, it was basically like, all right, now we've got some stability. We're going to be here for a good here's long our, while. Here's our place, yeah. And yeah, here's our place. And then you know, to to have to change that situation, it was tough. But this thing with with Disney and all th- this totally, at least for me, I'm hoping it translates the same way for for my wife and kids. But for me, this makes all of that, uh, you know, turmoil and upset and and life change worthwhile, because for the first time, I'll be able to go to a job and say, "This is my career. You know, this is what I do." Rather than you know, well, I'm going to. Well, you could you could walk you can walk into this and go. This is the last job I'll ever have. Exactly. Very happy if this was the last job I'd ever have. I I plan for it to be. I mean, this is where you know. Since I caught the Disney bug, you know, ten years ago, this is the direction I've been trying to steer my life. And you know, at first it was just a pipe dream. It was one of those things where. I would jokingly say, you know, one day I want to go work there. But, you know, in my mind, right. at least at first, fat it was, chance, right? Well, it wasn't so much fat chances that I was thinking more of, you know, when I'm when I'm, you know, old and gray and retirement age, I could, you know, move to Florida and, and you know, because like Mark's dad, for example, great, great guy, hell of a fella, really nice guy. Um, he's retired. And he works part-time at Disney just whenever they call him up out of the blue and they need him. And he goes and he, um, I know he drives boats. He does something else there too. I forget what exactly. But uh, 
but he drives boats, so, you know, like the, like the ferries and things like that. Because I don't know if people that haven't ever been there know this, but there's boats everywhere yeah. at Disney. I know that because I looked at it with Google Maps once. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, but they're everywhere, and so he does that and and loves it. You know, it's just it's something yeah. to to keep him busy. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what I looked at it as. Well, if that pipe dream ever really pans out, that's probably what it'll be. Is you know, in my golden years, I'll go there and well, now it could still be that, but it'll be the coda of your whole career there. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I, 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 I'm just, I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I mean, I'm, I really am overwhelmed when it, when it first came down. You know, I mean, I, I, you talk about choked up. I was choked up. Because it really was, there was so many emotions going through me. You know, the the two primary emotions that went through me were, you know, this is the payoff for having put up with a lot of stuff in the last few years, particularly work-wise. I mean, the last two, you know, quote-unquote serious jobs that I've held within the past, you know, 10 years were absolutely horrible, horrible jobs, deplorable jobs, working in... Uh, the extreme cold in warehouse environments, jobs that actually took a a literal physical toll on my health. And, you know, so this is, this is a, a, a nice, you know, I don't want to say reward, but you know, it's just, it, it makes it all feel like it, it's been worthwhile, you know? And it, I, I look at life sort of that way is sometimes you've got to go through hell to appreciate when you have something really good. Because I think a lot of people don't appreciate well, yeah. good things you, in their lives because they never knew anything other than something right. good. You know what I mean? So it, it, it takes really getting stomped sometimes to to see exactly when you are in a good moment, you know? And so I completely appreciate this good moment, you know, and, and the and the good things that are going to come of it. And then the other thing too, if, if you don't mind my uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit, pull it back. You were telling you you were telling me that uh, you know one of your ideas for uh, another episode of uh, Storytellers was us talking about uh, horrible girlfriend experiences, yes. like the psycho girlfriend experiences. Yes. I don't want to spoil anything, but I know you'll know who I'm talking about. Uh-huh. I had my my one, you know, to my mind. I'm sorry, I'm going to get sexist for just a moment. For to my mind, all women are basically unstable at their core. But the, my <laughs> one like sexist, serious, yes. <laughs> serious psycho girlfriend, and you know who I'm talking. She wasn't about. unstable at the core. She was unstable at the core, the edges, at, in the middle, yeah, yeah. top to bottom. Yes. Yeah, she, she was, was almost complete. like quivering like a chihuahua. Yeah, she was freaking crazy mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember this but what was her big thing what was her obsession at that time that we were together it was disney wasn't it disney she was a disney freak and this was at a time when i totally was not you know like i've i know i've told this story many right. times but i just didn't grow up disney i just didn't you know to me well she was like the girl oh, with God. the with the pink bed you know i've never not that i ever saw her bedroom anyway i think she was well, she lived in syracuse right but i'll bet you her yeah, room was Liverpool. like pink and white and stuffed animals on the bed and you know yep yep very much so uh-huh. and so you know here i am you know 20 years later 
and this is where I'm going to work. And, you know, they say success is the best revenge, and damn, they're right. <laughs> this is so awesome. Did you, you know? have another girlfriend that was that was into King Tut? Yes. Man, mm-hmm. how the fuck do I remember your girlfriend's obsessions? <laughs> I just, I don't know, that just sprung out of my mind. I remember, like, having a King Tut book and going, would this be something your girlfriend would be interested in? I just found out that uh, she split up with her husband, too. Okay. Just learned that. thought that was sad. I guess Ooh, that just brought the conversation <laughs> to a <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. We've strayed a bit from from Star Trek, but I don't know. As soon as you mentioned yeah, Job, you know, I, had is... to, I had to say that it's the first opportunity in one of our shows that I've had to mention that. And I mean, I know a lot of people have found out through other things, but there's a lot of people who listen to the show who aren't on Facebook and Aren't, right. aren't going to the forums and finding that out so and I'm you know it's just you can't keep that news bottled up you know no no I I, I will apologize to listeners of, of the Jonah Hex podcast that uh, I just recorded uh, what was episode 8 you've probably if, if you listen to that show then you've probably heard it by now probably weeks ago but uh, as we record this program, I just recorded that Jonah Hex program earlier today. Um, so that will air first. Ah. And I apologize for repeating the news. But I did mention it on there because, I, you know, I always imagine... Yeah, but this is a full-out be- gloat. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I always imagine that... Uh, and I would love to know. People write in about this and let me know if I'm crazy or not. But I always imagine that, that people, you know, our listeners, I mean have their niches that they don't necessarily listen to every program we put out because i'm sure that we have star trek people that could give a flying whatever about uh, jonah hex and vice versa yeah yeah so you know but to those of you that do for whatever crazy reason listen because you like to listen to us and you don't really care what the content is and i know you people are out there there's a couple um yeah, I appreciate you, and uh, I, I apologize for repeating something that, that you've already heard. But I hope I made it interesting the second time around because I told a little bit more of the story of exactly I'm <laughs> how it all went repeat. <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I uh, I am so totally excited about it, and uh, also I want to know from people, you know, if, if you're interested. I mean. Because I imagine we, we probably have some people that are seriously interested, you know, both, you know, because they're interested in us personally, um, but then also because of the Disney angle. So, you know, if people want to know more, definitely let me know, because I will be totally prepared to gloat podcast <laughs> style once I start working there. So, you know, if you guys want me to actually spin that into some sort of a segment, you know, I would love to do that. So just sure let me know. And someday yeah. I will tell people about why I'm at my pinnacle of life too but that's a long story too that might be another storytellers episode <laughs> but let's just say scott and i are a couple of smug bastards so <laughs> enjoy it while you can our buddy uh you know the, the the coolest thing is that you know you you said something that that really blew me away recently and the sentiment has been repeated by a, a good number of our uh, friends in the community. You you told me flat out that I now have the coolest job of anybody yes. you know. And that, God, that took me aback. I, I'm serious, Chris. That really took me aback because I've never... I remem- when I said that, that to you, I heard you, I heard you go, but, and then you thought about it, 
and then you realize, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I guess you know, I do. I've, I've never had a job that, you know, that that I think anybody ever would have envied. You know what I mean? I know some people I mean, I've, with some good jobs, had, too. Let me tell you, man. Yeah. I mean, I've had some cool jobs. I've had some jobs that, you know, I'm sure that there were people who were like, oh, that must have been kind of cool. But never a job where I actually heard somebody say, oh, I would love to do that, you know? And here, for the first time, I'm, I'm having people say that. I mean, our, our good buddy, uh, Todd Grady, you know, when, when I posted something up on uh, Facebook about it, he said flat out, that's something I've wanted to do since I was four years old. You know, so that's the kind of things, once I actually start this job and I'm actually performing the job, those are the kind of things that are going to stick in, in my mind and, and, and the kind of things that are, uh, frankly, those are the things that are going to motivate me. You know, is that thought that, you know, everybody has a bad day at work or everybody, you know, you, you can fall into a routine sometimes. And, and that that's my only thing is I hope I never, ever, ever come to take this situation for granted because there are people out there in the world that are like that. that are like, that is the coolest job ever, you know, that, you know, you are so lucky to be doing X, Y, and Z. I, you know, I'm going to hold on to that. Well, I swear I am. I watched this you know? movie called Exit Through the Gift Shop, and it was about street artists. And it had the one guy, he did it, he put in a quote unquote guerrilla art installation in Disneyland in California. Uh huh. But um, aside from all that, he was going in and he was sneaking in with a camera and he was buying his ticket at the door and he's um, had a British accent. He's just like, Oh, thank you for my ticket. Is Mickey Mouse going to be in there? And she's like, and the woman who sold him the ticket says, "Oh yeah, Mickey's in there. You just go straight through to Toontown, you know, and he'll be there waiting for you." And it was probably like a 19-year-old girl, and you could tell. I mean, she. I mean, the that that question didn't phase her in the least bit, and she was just having the greatest time. Hand, you know, when she handed him his ticket, she was like, here's your tickets, you know, because she knew she was handing somebody. He was a cynical artist guy, so he wasn't going, oh, my ticket's to Disney. But 99% of the time, you're, you know, that's something really special to people. And she, you could tell she was enjoying being part of that, you know. Right. So there's that right. aspect of that job that is not in a lot of jobs that I think is why you're ideal for that job, because you'll be able to lock right on to that, you know. You under. I mean, you're at the age now where, um, not that you would, wouldn't understand it before, but now I think you just truly understand the idea behind Disney. You know. Oh, absolutely. And you understand the absolutely. reality of the corporate structure of Disney and what Disney's like now compared to what it was when you know Walt was there, and you know you know the history of it, you know the ins and outs, you're interested in it. You, it's just ideal. It's awesome. This is a place. Literally, you know, where gloat, kings gloat, gloat. that live in gold-laced palaces, you know, and, and, and jewel-encrusted, you know, whatever, come to and go, wow, this is awesome. You know? I mean, that really happens. You know, heads of state, kings, you know, celebrities of every walk you know, of life and every sort come there and are impressed yeah, and blown you're, you're away. Be and around, you're going to be carting around a cross-section of every kind of person in the world. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I love that. I, I love that. That you know, this is this is the sort of thing I've been looking for all my life is to take something that is that is an extreme passion of mine that I will talk somebody's ear off if they give me the opportunity to talk about it. Now I get to actually turn that into a profitable venture. You know, I get to turn that into my what job, the you. thing yeah. that I do to feed me. Yeah. You know, I mean, talking about Disney with people and being enthusiastic about Disney and telling them the awesome things that they should go see, you know, the shows and the attractions and the cool little behind the scenes, you know, behind the magic trivia tidbits and stuff like that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'll normally do in a, in a given day. If I get an inkling that someone's interested now, all of a sudden, I mean, I'm going to have millions of people a year, you know, presenting me with that opportunity and getting paid for it. I mean, come on, you know, what, what's cooler than that? You know, I mean, that, that would be the equivalent of, so of far, you and I nothing. Paid to, <laughs> to do this show. You know what I mean? Yeah. If we, if we made a living hey, off dude, of this show, maybe someday, it'll, maybe someday we'll have both. We'll have our uh-huh. cake and eat it too. Well, you know, I was thinking about that the other day that, uh, I could be completely wrong about this, but I know that Disney used to have, Walt Disney World, I mean, used to have an official podcast, and I think it's now defunct. And if they ever try, you know, decide to, to, to start that venture up again, I think I would, I would seriously try to get in on you that would action. Be up for you the know? task of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would love it. I tell you I what. Absolutely- I, I tell you what. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. But, I, you know, there's, like I say, there's just so much opportunity, you know, for, for a guy like me that, you know, is not only into the company. I'm into a lot of the fringe things, you know, that the company's also got a hand in, you know, like Indiana Jones and Star uh, Star Wars, uh, Marvel, you yeah, know. Yeah, now Marvel. And at, and at lunch, you're going to go sometimes go get to eat lunch with your pal and mine, Mark Buttrick. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, cool too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's it's great. It's so cool. And uh yeah, I you know and that's that's another thing is you know the 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 friends and the opportunities to make new friends and and you know meet new people that is there you know I mean that I'll actually work with and stuff. That's that's cool. Yeah, Scott you know? Gardner is working at Disney and surrounded by comic shops. That's all we got to say now. <laughs> that's all we need. Scott Gardner has has um, IMAX theaters nearby to watch Tron 3D and I'm Tron Legacy you. 3D and with his pal Chris Honeywell. The perks, the perks alone of this, you know, both built in and then just, you know. You're going to be working the- at Disney when the new Tron movie comes out. How awesome is that? I just thought of that. That is very awesome. Well, you know, there's every opportunity. I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to jinx things by by being too grandiose in my, you know, <laughs> you know what I but mean. You're gonna do it, aren't but you? <laughs> there's every opportunity. You know, this, this is the thought that occurred to me the other day. There is every possibility that I might actually get to. Just, just wrap your mind around this for a moment. There was, there was a time. You know, back when it was first announced that I was fretting being able to see the Toronto Rail 
while it existed. You may I drive. I might get to drive the Toronto. I would love. Wouldn't it be awesome if you got trained on the Toronto Rail? How awesome would that? Are be? you going to be sitting in the front of the Toronto Rail and th- and hearing? Down the track. Oh man, that oh, would be. Bastard. Can you imagine? I mean, how did how literally how did I get? You to also that? have to tell us if they have a monorail. They've got to. I swear, they've got to. If they're gonna, I. It would be so cool if you got to drive a monorail flight simulator or, or monorail simulator. Oh, I hope they have oh, one. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, I bet you you're right. I bet you there probably is one somewhere. I'm very curious to know whether they they put you in a training monorail or if they like take you on a monorail on an off hour and they get, get somebody in there and they go, okay, we're gonna take you know. Or I, I I'm very yeah. curious. I you know on or off air. Yeah, I don't I, know I really... what the what what Disney feels about that, but. I'm just very curious to know, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how, like, you get trained. It's such a special, you know, I mean, it's a specialized field, monorail operator. There's a few cities oh, that have them, you know, you could go to, like, possibly Seattle and drive the monorail in Seattle, too, I guess, with the experience, or to another Disney park that has a monorail, but, or, you know, but just awesome. I mean, here in North America, not, not too, too many, many of them. <laughs> Not too many, yeah. They're 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 pretty special, and uh, yeah. The only monorail I've ever ri- ridden was in um, Seattle, and it was fun. I just I, I loved it. I loved it, and I remember actually the what the the few times that we rode it. Each time we got to ride in the front of it, and that was just really neat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a year ago when we went. Uh, on our last vacation, you know, when, when we uh, came down for Star uh, Star Wars weekends. Yeah, that was one of the highlights. You know? That's what I got. Most of yeah. the pictures we, were like of you guys in the monorail, like with the with the yeah. monorail pilot in there, you know, talking to him. Yeah. I mean, and there you go. <laughs> that, that, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, literally, it, it floors me that you know a, a, a year or so ago. Whenever it was announced that that there would be a Tron-based, you know, like a Tron overlay on the monorail, I can literally remember fretting with my wife and going, how in the world, you know, how are we going to afford another Disney vacation? I have got to get down there while this thing exists before the movie comes along and they and they remove the overlay. I want to I want to physically see with my own eyes the Toronto rail and really fretting and trying to figure out how could I make that a reality and there you to go. get to this point where there's every opportunity I might drive the thing. I mean, wow. You know, talk about a dream come true. That's just, I, I, I at this moment, I just, I still can't wrap my mind around the concept. It's, it's bigger than me, you know, but pretty, pretty cool. Pretty awesome. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great tangent. That was awesome. Yeah, that is a great tangent. That was a-
At Arthur Treacher's, please don't take our sign too literally. Our specialty isn't just delicious tasting fish. Our specialty is delicious food. Sure, Arthur Treacher's got famous for the original fish and chips, but we also specialize in boneless chicken and chips and shrimp and chips, even our own mouth-watering sandwiches. Come to Arthur Treacher's and let us cook you our specialty. The only thing we need to know is which one. Arthur Treacher's, we are something else. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Can this be another me? The discovery of Data's perfect Android double. How much can you trust Data now? Leads to a deadly game of who's who. He's been hurt. This is very serious. Now, Data's evil twin plots to destroy the crew. Back off. Go! With the help of a lethal life force on Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome back to Star Trek Monthly Mondays, number 24. I apologize for all the tangenting, but while we are tangenting, I just thought of something related to our Disney discussion and all that, which is, I want to tease you guys. I want to tease you severely. We, we hadn't mentioned, maybe we shouldn't mention this for fear of, uh, of jinxing, but as we've already gone out on a limb uh, with all this sort of thing already... Do we want to tell them what we uh, sort of have in the uh, the tentative planning phases for December? <laughs> <laughs> well, you might want to hint at it a little bit. We both feel badly that for the longest, you know, ever since last Dragon Con, everything's been Dragon Con, Dragon Con, Dragon Con. We were talking it up and talking it up, and we were so looking forward to it. And, you know, just anticipating it. And then with all the things that have gone on with me, you know, in these past couple of months, Dragon Con, unfortunately, was was a victim of, of all this stuff that that happened. But we might be able to offer you, the listener, an awesome consolation prize to us having missed uh, Dragon Con, which is uh, Chris and I have been talking and there is every possibility that it may come to to real fruition that uh in early december chris will be coming down here to visit me in florida and we'll be able to hang out together record some stuff and what i'm really looking forward to what i really want to make a reality is uh chris has never been to walt disney world ever and i want to do walt disney world with my best friend I think it would be awesome. I know he would like it. As 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 cynical a bastard as he can be, sometimes he's going to be a big freaking kid. Even from at a Walt cynical Disney. point of view, I'm going to still love it. Even the cynic, love cynical it. part of me is going to be very happy there. <laughs> You're going to. I'm going to have. You are absolutely. I'm going to have right. moments of childlike glee, and then I'm going to also have moments of evil, like oh, you know. Yeah. You know. I, I. You know. My ultimate dream is one day Scott and I'll like. Be just walking and take a wrong turn through a door, and we'll hear like drip, 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 and there'll be like this big block of ice with tubes on it. <laughs> and we figure out the rest. Oh, that would be that would be cool. That would be very. Yeah, that cool. would be awesome. I want to believe. You know, <laughs> I want to believe. Of, of all the things I want to believe, you know, like like aliens and Bigfoot and 
Loch Ness monster and everything, that's probably the biggest one. I want to believe, you know. So, but yeah, I <laughs> I hope all that comes to happen. It sounds like it, you know, it, it's in the heavy planning stages. It sounds like it really is. But uh, you know, any of you guys that listen to our Tron spectacular from a while back, our Tron tacular, I think we called yes. it. You know, we were so looking forward to. We are very much looking forward to tron legacy there is every possibility that we will actually be able to go see it together down here in florida so i'm looking forward to to that that would be that would be an awesome capper to an up and down year you know what i mean but that would really take the year out on an extreme high note for me so so like i say just a tease but uh We'll, we'll keep you updated on the status of, of the planning of that whole thing. But anyway, back to Star Trek. This time around, uh, this is the final segment of the show. We're going to look at the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Data Lore. Did you have anything to add before we get into this, Chris? No, just that uh, if we do end up down there, they will get treated, I'm sure, to some live two true freaks podcasts and i'm really oh, yeah. looking forward to i we're you know we've talked about a lot of things so we don't really know what'll happen but i'm sure we'll do a couple um movie commentaries where we sit down and watch a movie together because the last time we got together we got to do robocop and uh mm-hmm. i have i have a little some more advanced equipment now so we could even do an uh, another you know some other movie uh, it's just gonna be fun it's going to be a blast. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to that. I'm psyched. I, I can't tell you. I am really excited about that. So hopefully everything will come through just fine, and that will be a reality for us uh, pretty soon. All right, so anyway, getting into this one, Data Lore. Now, I was just noticing here in the Star Trek companion book that the uh, – the original airing week of this, because this was a syndicated show, so it didn't have an airing day. It had an airing week. It was the week of January 18th, 1988. So within a few weeks of being 20 years from the episode that we just talked about, right, uh, right. Uh, Private Little War. That's pretty cool. Um, all right. So the synopsis, according to the Star Trek, The Next Generation Companion, Reads as follows, Data experiences an almost human expectancy when the Enterprise returns to his home planet in Omicron Theta to discover the secret behind the disappearance of his of its 411 colonists uh, 26 years before. An away team finds the lab of the reclusive Dr. Noonien Soong, a renegade Earth scientist who originally built a twin of Data's named Lore. Over time, the crew learns that Lore was disassembled at the demand of the colonists for being, quote-unquote, too perfect. Data was the second model. Lore's disassembled parts are found, rebuilt, and reanimated aboard the ship. But the reason for the android's original disassembly soon becomes clear. He turns Data off and assumes his identity. He then summons the huge, life-draining crystal entity that destroyed the colony years before after being lured there by him as revenge for his disassembly. Wesley senses the switch, but no one listens to him until it's almost too late. Finally, his mother learns the truth and reactivates Data. Uh, But by then, the crystalline being is almost upon the ship. 
The two androids fight each other in a cargo bay until Laura is thrown into a wide dispersal transporter beam. I think that's inaccurate, actually. I don't think it was a wide dispersal transporter they, they beam. They didn't it was say just a transporter. About that, yeah. Yeah. It says the crystalline being now has no contact with the Enterprise and it departs. That's a pretty good synopsis, except for that wide dispersal. The reason I argue that is that, you know, the wide dispersal thing is what they used on, say, like Red Jack. Right, right. But Lore comes back, you know, spoiler alert, but well, he does. Well, they were also just back. getting ready to, like, beam a tree over, so I don't know why they would have it set on wide dispersal yeah, to do that, point. you know? Excellent point. Excellent point. I uh, I like this episode with a few exceptions. There's there's some truly groan-worthy yes. moments in this one, but for the most part, I still dig this episode. Um, it, it's pretty high on my on my list of uh, episodes that I like quite a bit. But uh, I, I'm gonna let you run with it. What it, what did you think of this one? What have you got for notes? Well, I think this is the first Data gets to shine episode of like where we truly and. Um, it made me think a lot of about Data as a character because I really think Data, they were trying to make... Data was going to be the Spock of this one. Yeah. You know? and oh, yeah. That's a hard, hard role to fill, and I think Data's about as good as they were going to do. I think, you know, they couldn't have come up with a better character than Data to fill that sort of role uh, of the character who's learning being around humans in this one. That being said, I just hate his name. I think it's just too much of a... It's too, You know, Noonien Singh, when we find out, like, when we finally, like, meet Noonien Singh or find out about his personality, he's not, like, Data is just such a nerdy, like, you know, you'd <laughs> think he would give it a name like Adam or something like that, or, you know, or right, he's something yeah. human to humanize him a little bit instead of calling him Data. But that's the only quote. But this one really sort of underlines that, that that Data is, and he's a very interesting character. So I think this episode, a lot of people probably this is a favorite. It seems of a lot of people because a lot of people like a the evil brother story, and b you know the getting to find out some of the origins of Data and and uh, you know finding out more about him. So I think that's why it's such a good episode it does have some super grown worthy one of the first big grown worthy things I saw in it and it's something that comes up all the time and this is as soon as they get Laura on the you know on the Enterprise and going where, where's the first place he's hanging out the bridge yeah super I hate powered, that scene super you know robot who's I mean, oh, okay, so he's like Data or whatever, but still, he's up on the bridge immediately. You know, come on. And uh, the both the dialogue and the acting in that particular scene, I think, is atrocious. It just doesn't work. It, 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 the whole thing comes off as extremely awkward. Uh-huh. And I walk away from that scene, go not knowing ex- what it was that they were going for exactly, because it just it, it, it it's. It's poorly scripted and poorly acted. I, I hate to be that brutal about it, but it's just Data walks out and basically like catches Lore on the bridge, you know, getting all this instruction on all this stuff right. that you would think would be classified right. or something. And then they have all this just goofy, weird, uncomfortable dialogue. And then the moment that makes me laugh out loud is when uh, 
you know, lore ass data point blank in front of all these human beings. He says, well, isn't pleasing humans important? And Data gets this weird look on his face, and he says something like, yeah, it's not that big a deal, basically. Right. And I'm thinking, wouldn't, like, Riker or Jordy of all people look at that and go, ooh, that's cause for concern right there. Uh-huh. You know, that the two robot guys don't think human beings are all that important to, to be subservient to. You know? It, it just, it's one of those moments, you know... This happens all the time in television or comic books or especially in movies where something happens that we as the audience want to just throttle the characters in it and go, okay, stupid, you're you're not this dumb. This is a moment that you should be focusing on and going, ah, uh, something's not, you know, like it's the woman walking into the dark cellar you know, who's home alone at three o'clock in the morning in the movie, and you're just going, "No, no, don't do that! Don't do that! That's stupid!" Right, and someone has you just know? told her that the serial killer was seen in her neighborhood. Right, and that's one of those moments in this. You know, when when Data does that, and nobody seems concerned that he's saying, "Human, you know, eh, you know, it's it's low priority well, this, for me to to want to please human this beings." This was something so I instantly so- wanted to ask you about. Is how did you feel about? And then Picard just basically, I can't remember the exact quote, but they're talking, and Picard basically just says, you know, acknowledges that machines are human. You know, that that. Yeah. You know, and I, I was like, "Ooh, I wonder how gonna Scott's s- going to think about this," because Picard just sort of like goes, "Yep, that you know." There's no debate with him. He's like, oh, well, you know. I We're going to come back to this. I wish I could tell you how many episodes it's going to be, but there's an episode. I'm trying to remember. It's got to be second season now that I think about it because um, Whoopi Goldberg is in it as Guinan. But there's an episode that is entirely about that subject. Is Data alive? You know, is is he a person, basically? So I really want to reserve all of that for, then. for when we get to that episode. But, you know, in short, my thing is that bottom line, Data's a machine. I like him. I think he's a great character. Is he alive? No. He's a machine. He was built to act like a human being. He looks like a human being. He's a nice guy. He's a great character. But in the end, you know... He's he's no more alive than your refrigerator's alive, you know. And there's a great moment in that episode when we get to it, where where somebody makes that very point that just because he looks like a human being doesn't make him any more alive than a toaster. And you know, the, the guy even makes the point of you know, if it didn't look like a human being, you wouldn't be this passionate about. You know, fighting whatever the thing is that they're fighting in the episode. Well, Riker's I, I think that's in love great... with Data. Riker's just enamored of him. I mean, he's always giving him that, oh, Data, you're so funny, you know, whenever, or, you know, he's always giving right. him that beaming father look whenever Data's right. doing something hu- or stumbling over something human, you know. It, it comes down to the same thing, basically, as, as the as the hollow thing that we that talked about a while back that. I fear we lost a listening at least one listener over because the guy got really pissed with my stance on the whole hologram thing. 
but it, it comes down to it's just it's kind of silly when you think it really is kind of silly because you know sure they act human and they can be very likable and very engaging i mean i loved the doctor on voyager i thought he was one of the best characters on that show but at the end of the day he's not alive he's he's a computer program he's no more alive than laura croft you know because he's programmed with a set of responses to given stimuli and so he can act incredibly lifelike and realistic and in he you can interact with him but at the end of the day is he human is, is he real and alive and feeling and no think- because it's all a response based on input and program. Well, I don't, well, they, Data's the same story. I, I think with Data, they sort of hint that he has some sort of quantum, some sort of, you know, the the, nat- you know, the nature of his brain was, um, you know, the, the totally, you know, nobody thought it was going to work. He'd failed it. I can't remember what the name of the... the oh, uh, positronic. The positronic brain that he has. Yeah. Is, uh... Is was hinted that it was some sort of thing that really nobody but Noonie and Singh understood, and that it. That what it, is that? Is that supposed to be like the learning computer? Is well, that's that what, what that's what I, I I got the feeling that they that maybe Noonie and Singh had created something that was not as much as a machine that that simulates the actions of a brain, but actually functions entirely like a brain that like probably like when you start it up it's probably like a baby brain where you have to put input into it where you know I got I got the impression that it was probably like when data was first turned on he wasn't like hello I am data he could probably do stuff like that but he probably that he probably was like a brain that just had like the basic instincts built in of like how to learn and how to mimic and how to pick up stuff and then had to be given input from that point on, like a real brain. You know, I I, I always right. got the impression that Data actually, you know, like uh, his body was more like a machine. But then again, with people, it's the same thing. You know, that that there was some point where his his brain was more complex and working in a different fashion from, say, a computer that. There, there was actually a point where somebody could say, "Is this simulating a soul?" And you know, obviously, he couldn't have emotions till he got his emotion chip. So, right, you know, there was a certain amount of him that was that was pre-programmed. Whether you know, a lot of this was just like sloppy, inconsistent writing or bad continuity, you know, because I mean, Next Generation is infamous for you know messing up their technology. Right, you know the consistency of their technology, but I always got the thing that I always got the idea that Data was like, you know, I mean, obviously they weren't pumping. If if Data was just a computer, was just a machine that everybody knew, it's like, all right, well, this chip simulates this part of the brain or something like that, and you know, Data's a damn useful, you know, Starfleet member. They if if that he was something that they could just squeeze out. They would just be squeezing them out, you know, or they would be making, 
you know, every starship would have a data or, you know, who could go into radioactive areas and move really fast and was extra strong, you know? Yeah, you right. know, you would you would want to make a bunch of datas. But I, I got the idea that data was just sort of, he was like an alien, basically, to them. You know, he was one of a kind right. until Laura showed up and was this mystery. And nobody really knew if his brain was, you know, it's that old maxim of, like, if you're in another room and there's a computer in the other room and you're communicating to it, and you can't tell the difference between and you think you're communicating with a real person and you know then then what's the difference you know it's it's that sort of function taken to the more extreme because they actually don't know what's going on with data in his brain you know it's a mystery right. to him and uh you know this was just their opportunity to fill in a lot of blanks and open more mysteries and introduces it, it had the classic you know story element of if there's a gun on the table in the first act it's gonna get fired by the third act and that was his right. uh, off switch when you know that was just telegraphed that ooh his off switch is gonna come in handy at some point because we've just learned right. about it <laughs> now, I, I could be wrong I, I was really racking my brains to try to remember this. Uh, ho- hopefully somebody will point it out whether I'm right or I'm wrong and you know by getting a hold of us an email or something but I think that changes you know in this it was shown to it looked like it was in his back or his armpit or something yeah, like that like a puppet but I think it yeah I think eventually it becomes to where it's like on the back of his neck That's or what something I always like thought C3. like on the back of his yeah. head like uh, yeah. something he had to open up on his head. Because I would swear in that episode, uh, Measure of a Man, the one I was talking about, where ba- basically Data's humanity, you know, his existence as a sentient is on the line. I think Data, uh, excuse me, Riker rather, turns him off by touching the back of his neck. And then when uh, when Jordy revives him in uh, Insurrection, I think he activates him by touching the back of his neck. So I, I'm pretty sure that changed at some point. But again, I, I could I could be completely wrong. But uh, I just thought that that was interesting. I don't I, I certainly don't remember another episode where somebody, you know, stuck their their arm in like his armpit or the middle of his back. Right. Or, I, I, I was having trouble figuring out exactly where it was they were showing that the the thing was supposed to be. Because in the scene where he's showing the doctor, it looked like it was in his armpit. But then later on, when when Lore was making him twitch and flail around, it kind of looked like he was pushing the in the middle of his back. So I couldn't quite figure out which which it was supposed to be. But and that was another one, one things- where Lore was just acting way too suspicious for for just Wesley yeah. to suspect him. You know. Yeah, that whole thing toward the end with with. Wesley on the bridge. Wow, you talk about just an uncomfortable scene, you know. And I, I you know, when, so when for one thing, when did Wesley suddenly get the balls to to sit up there in front of Picard, who he's both terrified of and completely enamored of, and go, "Well, since I am finished here, let me tell you off, you ball headed yeah. bastard." You well, know, he is a teenager. I guess, but it just seemed really out of character. Although I do love, I love some of the the shit that comes Wesley's way in this episode. You know, 
Picard tells him to shut up. Uh, his mother tells him to shut up. And then later on, uh, you know, at the end of the episode, Lord, you know, he's telling him, you know, are you prepared to die, little man? And I'm going to send you up like a torch. I'm going, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> shut up and do it. I, I like that. I love the music in this episode. Uh, it, it, this has got a great score. And uh, to my knowledge, it's not out there anywhere. If anybody knows any different, if there's like bootlegs or something out there that I should be hunting for for this, uh, let somebody let me know. But uh, I would love to to hear the uh, soundtrack of this get released because uh, it's Ron Jones, who I really like anyway. I'm a big fan of Ron Jones. And uh, there were a lot of moments in this, especially right at the beginning of the episode where they were finding the, the little like cave amphitheater thing where you know where Data City was born and all that. A lot of that music sounded like alien to me. You know, it had that just creepy atmospheric sci-fi kind of music. I really liked that. But the whole episode, I thought, had really good music through the whole thing. It's definitely better than... Uh, What's his name? McCarthy, Dennis McCarthy. I like Dennis McCarthy, but all his stuff kind of just sounds the same, and it's very backgroundish. It doesn't have, you know, it just doesn't have that right, dramatic it's like incidental punch. music. Yeah, it's it's not truly a score so much as incidental music. Whereas Ron Jones, you know, he scored his episodes, and I liked that. I I, I really like it in this one. Well, this one had its enemy within comparison. With a, with a good and evil data and uh, you know this one had the had the you know the intruder can be identified by the scratches on his face moment where You're he right. had to stop the ticks on his face it was a facial giveaway that that distinguished the bad one at the very end of the episode Picard says to data he says something like is it really you or are you all right or something like that? Data says, I'm fine. He uses a contraction and says, I'm fine. And then he does the facial tick thing and walks away. And Picard doesn't even bat an eyelash. He doesn't look at Wesley like, you know, is he putting me on? Or is he serious? Or do I need to call security? He just says, and get rid of that damn facial twitch or whatever he says. And that, you know, it's like everybody has a big yuck and that's the end of the episode. And I'm thinking, shouldn't he have at least a, a, a twinge of concern that maybe they just beamed the wrong friggin' android out into Whoops. space? You know, and he doesn't. He, he doesn't show any concern whatsoever that Data just did two things that are indicators that he's lore. Although Laura it did just, program him to Twitch, too, so... It, I just didn't understand that ending. You know what I mean? It seemed like he would have had to give some, you know, Queen to Queen's Level 3 style code word or exactly, something. Exactly, yes. You know? And nothing. He Instead of doing anything like that to reassure the Captain and Wesley that, you know, he really was Data, he, he gives two lorisms as an answer and i'm like what the heck? what is well, that well this had that hurried ending syndrome i think like yeah, one of the yeah, things is okay lore was going to let the crystal entity couldn't crystalline entity couldn't get in through the tractor beam so what lore was going to do 
was come up with this premise to beam something over so there would be a moment when the track when the you know beam would be down and they could and the crystalline entity could get through all right fair enough right well why didn't the crystalline entity come through and get them when they were beaming <laughs> lore out he doesn't care about lore at that point he wants to get caught- he wants to get some you know I caught the same thing. I thought, there's that window that Laura was just telling you to watch right. for. Why aren't you taking advantage of it? Yeah, I thought the same thing. Yep, exactly. And I mean, he the had same just thing. sat there and said, okay, Crystalline Entity, this is what I'm going to do. It's chow time. You know, as soon as I beam this over, you can get over here, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he spells it literally verbally right out. So, yeah, I wondered about <laughs> that, but. At that point, it was There's... all about you know the big fight at the end. I like that. I like when Beverly Crusher gets set on fire and it goes running out in the <laughs> hallway on fire. That's pretty dramatic for a start. You, you don't often see a phaser just like set someone on fire. You know, it makes sense that it would. So that was pretty cool. That was cool. I like that. There are some nice sets in this episode. You know, when they go into the the cave thing, and then Riker turns the light on by the way he knew exactly where the yeah, light he just reaches was. over and like turns that. it on that's a good set that that looks really cool and then they go into that uh that laboratory and this is what cracks me up is that you know from from years of watching and re-watching this series you start to notice that a lot of the same set pieces crop up over and over and over again and one of them that's in this episode is those blinky uh, orange neon tubes and they're going to come up again and again and again. As a matter of fact, I think they're actually reused in this episode from Star Trek 2 because the the uh, regular one space station where Kirk's old girlfriend was right. working had those same blinky tubes and I bet you they're the same exact ones from that movie. But they're in this episode in, in Soong's laboratory and they're going to come up I mean... at least a dozen more times over the course of next gen you watch but i always get a kick out of seeing those because it's the same machine every time and i'm i'm i just look at that thing and go what is this thing's function other than to blink yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's why they're everywhere everybody needs a toaster and you notice data there, there's that part where they're they're exploring the lab and he holds the little mold thing up to his face and then he wanders over to a corner and there's this giant window and we can see behind the window is a room filled with gas and he just hits the button and opens the, the thing never runs a tricorder reading or what you know what if that was you oh know, he'd like be fine gas. yeah well he'd be fine <laughs> yeah he'd be fine <laughs> the rest of the landing party chokes and dies you know <laughs> we see uh, he doesn't care that much about humans uh, so you know yeah he yeah he even says so. We see uh, Chief Argyle again yeah. uh, in this episode. I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know if we see him again after this, but it was cool to see him again. I always wonder, you know, I'm sure with, with the hundreds of Star Trek The Next Generation novels and comics that are out there, they probably have filled all this story in. But I'd like to know that, that story of the in-between period between the end of Season 1 and the beginning of Season 2. You know, what happened... You know, why did Beverly leave and what happened to, you know, the chief engineer, you know, and all that sort of thing. I, I, you know, I, I don't know any of that. 
missing info, missing period. But I'd, I'd like to find out, you know, if it has been explored, what exactly like the quote unquote official explanation right. was for all the changes and the things that went on. I like the crystalline entity. I think that thing's cool. Well, I know we see it in at least one more episode that comes down the pike, but I like that thing. To me, it's like the the Galactus of Star Trek. I think it's a it's a yes. cool idea how it just eats planets and you know all the life on the planets. I think that's neat. And colludes with you robots. Yeah, that's about all <laughs> I had for this one. Really? Yeah. Oh, I got a bunch oh, yeah. more. <laughs> I do. I, I took a bunch of notes on this one. Just little little things I caught here and there. They send Wesley to go look in on Data to see how Lore's doing. Now, by this point, I, I kind of had the impression that they suspected Lore. They suspected something might be up with Lore. Now, seeing as how they know how powerful these androids are and everything... Right. You're going to send the, the, the lowly, dorky ensign to go check up on the on the two robots that, you know, might be doing something sketchy. You're not going to send, like, war for a, a whole security team or something. It just seemed a little, a little goofy. And then they send him. You know, he goes down there. He observes or whatever. He comes back. He tries to tell them that he thinks something's funny, and then everybody wants to tell him to shut right, up. Right, right. After, after they've <laughs> given him that job to do. <laughs> So what's your opinion? Oh, you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. But what do you care how they treat Wesley? <laughs> you want him no, to treat I don't like Wesley time. like a dog, so Yeah, I don't I don't care in the long run. I, I wish it had been Wesley that got at least set on fire in this episode instead of his mother. I'll settle for his mother though. <laughs> but uh now the the part this this is the moment I you know when I when this episode came up in our rotation, the one scene I could remember from this one that I remember always really liking a lot was when uh, Worf jumps into the turbo lift and he and Lore face off. Yeah. And Lore just wails on it, like knocks the wind right out. I loved that because it shows just how much more powerful than Worf uh, Data would be. And I thought that was pretty cool. Because, you know, you, you seldom ever see Worf you know, not want to just rush right into a battle or whatever. But, you know, there was a couple of times, you know, later on in, in the series and then in the movies, you know, like an insurrection where Data's compromised, where you could see that Worf had a little bit of, uh, not fear necessarily, Respect. but he was a little bit, yeah, <laughs> getting, yeah, for, for the fact getting that the beat Data... down in the, tr- in the elevator, I'm sure, <laughs> helped do that a bit. Klingons are badasses, but they ain't stupid either. You know, they like to win. Yeah. I like that moment, though. I, I think the, the cinematography in that particular scene is really, really good. Because he just, you know, he just cuffs aside. Well, it's also a rare, you know, it's a rare Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek The Original Series kick-ass moment of like a real, you know, like knock somebody out battle, you know. Yeah, that's true. Because they haven't, they you know, at this point, Roddenberry was still heavily involved in the series. And you're right; they didn't have near the physical action going in, as far as like physical confrontations that Kirk era Trek was so so well known for. You know, with the captain getting both getting beatdowns and delivering beatdowns every yeah. episode, and getting shirt ripped off. And so you weren't seeing that stuff in this series. It was all 
you know, cerebral type stories, you know, going to the, the porno planet and stuff like that. This, yeah, you're right. This is the first time we saw a really good fight, short as it was. Right. <laughs> but it was a good fight, and somebody ended up it getting wasn't. beaten unconscious in it. <laughs> so it's very old school. Now, you were talking about the, the whole evil twin thing. Um, something I read today, I didn't know this before, but uh, evidently that was uh, Brent Spiner's idea to do that. that. And it basically changed the entire premise of the episode because they were going more for something that was like, uh, it was kind of like a, the, the way I read it, it sounded like it would be sort of an amalgamation of, of two later episodes. There was that one where, I don't know if you ever saw it, was the one where Data created a daughter? Yes, I remember that. Yes. And then then there was another episode where it's it's way late in the se- in the series. I want to say it's like 6th or 7th season episode where this woman creates these little robot guys. They they almost look like you remember those wind up little like fake R2D2 things you used to be able to get out of the gumball machine or whatever you'd wind them up and they'd walk. Yes. They look like those. And she creates these things. And the whole deal with that episode was that Data figures out that they're actually alive. They're like sentient robots. And it becomes another one of those episodes about, you know, the ethics of, of you know, can you really out. send Yeah, can you really send these robots that you created with your own two hands, you know, and programmed? Is it ethical to send them into like this whatever it was, radiation field or whatever where they'll die? You know, I mean it's the exact thing they were freaking created for but it becomes this whole stupid moral dilemma thing of you know it's wrong to kill these cute little cuddly robots it was kind of stupid but you know the the original concept for this one was going to be something along those lines where data basically falls in love with this female version of himself that is put into like dangerous situations and stuff. And so it was going to be more of a morality thing of, you know, the ethics of, you know, this, this girl robot being sent out on dangerous missions. It could have been interesting, but I I think I like it better with the, you know, even though it's such a cliche of the evil twin, it's still, it's a good, well, I'm sure Brett Spiner just wanted to do that because it would have been way fun acting, you know? Yeah. Well, this is the first time, too, that we really get to see his range. Right, right. As an actor, you know, because he, you know, as, as much as I really like him as Data, I think he's he's really great as that character. Whenever I've seen him be evil in something, damn, he's a he likes he's being a evil. Scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He. I mean, he's a scary bad guy because he came back. Uh, toward the very end of Enterprise he comes back and he plays an ancestor of the scientist that's discussed in this episode Noonien Soong he plays one of Noonien Soong's ancestors like a, I don't know it's probably great grandfather or something like that you know several generations right. back but he's he's a genius just like Noonien Soong but he's evil or at least twisted you know and he he's involved with this whole thing of basically he's like the father figure to this clan of of cons people really you know they're they're more of the the remnants of the um what the hell was that called eugenics, eugenics war. war yeah 
Yes, he he's like the father of a clan of these eugenics war kids. Oh man, good stuff, really good stuff. And he's just a bastard. And he's you buy it. I mean, you so buy it. He may look like Data, but he's nothing like Data in those episodes. He's just a, a, a complete bastard, and really good in that in that role. So, you know. I would, I would, you, I think you would really enjoy those episodes, but also I would highly recommend them to anybody, you know, interested in more, you know, stuff related to Data and Data's whole backstory and how Data came to be and Noonie and Soong and all that sort of thing. And plus, you know, trying to find some redeeming qualities in Enterprise. Well, there you go. That, that, I want to say it was two episodes with him. I could be wrong, but I think it was a two-parter. But yeah, really, really good stuff. I liked it a lot, and uh, that's about all I got for this one. I, you know, I, I did enjoy it. I got a real kick out of it. I, I think it's, uh, I think it holds up pretty good. You know, I with, loved with the this one when it first came out, and I still really like oh, it. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's got its cheese factor, but that's okay. That's that's something I like in Star Trek. So. It's okay. I won't complain about the cheese of it. I'll actually in- embrace the cheese of it, especially when it's in that classic good <laughs> evil crew member getting to chew the scenery show, you know. Yeah, I love it. And you could tell they put an extra bit of care and money and time into this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember when I first saw this one. I, I know I didn't see it first run, and I'm pretty sure that I saw one of the later lore episodes before I saw this one. I, I, as a matter of fact, I think I saw the one, I don't know what the name of it is, but the one where lore comes back and uh, and it actually has Soong in it. Because that's a great episode. Because Spiner plays three different characters all in the same episode. He's Data, he's Lore, and he's Soong all in the same episode. And uh, that's a great one. I'm, I think I saw that one. Before I actually saw this one, you know, the first one with lore in it, but uh, I, I'll look. I look forward when we eventually make it to that one because that's a really solid episode. And I like lore. You know, he, he he was used to some pretty good effect. I thought over the course of of the series, you know, there was uh, there was that clunker one way down the road with uh, where he hooks up with the with the whatever you call it, the like disaffected Borgs. I thought that. Oh, I don't know if you ever no. saw that. It was stupid. Oh man, it was it was bad. I missed most of any Borg stuff from. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, that stuff's oh, gonna wow. be all, all that stuff's gonna be new to me. So I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. All that the whole where Picard, you know, became a Borg and all that. Oh, you're gonna Mocutious like that. That's some like of the that. most. Ex- yeah. yeah, that's. That's some of the most uh, exciting Star Trek there is, flat out, you know. Uh, of all the incarna- incarnations of Trek, I still think that's some of the most exciting well, stuff is the, was, uh, the the earliest Borg episodes. I actually, I heard how good that stuff was, and I actually didn't watch it at the time because I'd missed a lot of it. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to skip this and have it to look forward to someday. So now I have... Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to all that. And um, the only problem with that is that then there's that possibility that it it builds up unreal expectations in your mind. No, too. <laughs> you know, I mean, I understand it's going to have that that '80s damage to it, no matter what, and and all that, you know. And 
and that's okay. I can I am able to put that visually in context and not get you know be like, oh, these special effects aren't up to snuff or whatever for a space battle. But it's it's all gonna. It, it, I just remember when that story and hearing people talking about it and going, wow, that sounds awesome. Picard gets absorbed yeah. by the you know. The Borg, I just remember when the Borg showed up, I remember thinking, and someone was describing them to me, and I said, those are a really good enemy for Star Trek. Finally, there's somebody yep. who's a good, somebody who's actually a threat to, to Starfleet, you know, or to whoever, to to everybody, you know. They they were great. They, they're, they're still great, don't get me wrong, but unfortunately they, they fell into Venom Syndrome, where it was... You know, you, you came up with a great character, a great enemy. And you couldn't stick by it. And then you, well, and then you just used it. You know, you just kept, you know, it kept showing up and it kept showing up and it kept showing up. And it, you know, when you do that and you start to chip away at it and you start to add goofy elements well, and you start to do weird stuff, then it, it, it dilutes well, the original yeah, well, threat. Yeah, you know, you have the whole thing of the Borgs being a hive mind and then act, after a while you start having queen Borgs and Borgs with personalities and, you right. know, all, all this and that. And it's it just starts getting to be gobbledygooky. It's better just to have them as a such an, you know... Basically, they became personalized after a while instead of being the, right. you know... I mean, I liked how, like, I've seen the random Borg episode and, like, I remember, like, you could go onto a Borg ship and just walk around because they, you know, right. they would be, you know, because Borg would be bumping right into you, but they'd be doing something, you know, so it was a completely alien way of thinking, you know, they were this completely alien race and... I was happy with that. That's what made them so scary. But when, you know, they started ha having personalities involved, then it just became another, you know, good guys versus bad guys thing, you know, where who could shoot, shoot right. blow up the, the other person's ship first. Yep. It's when they changed that concept yeah. from, you know, completely alien, hive minds, you know, where they would they would ignore the living basically right right you know and then you get into like you say you know you've got personalities you've got the the queen bee and all that and it just yeah. became yeah that that's where the concept changed and and not in a in a good or favorable way in my it opinion it just started becoming you know, confusing instead of being scary yeah. So, yeah and it's one of those points i i i often forget to bring up when uh, you know, I get into discussions with people about why I really don't like First Contact very much. You know, the the movie First Contact. That was one of the major things. Was that as you know, I really looked forward to that movie when it was announced and when it was coming out. You know, the thought that wow, you know, we're going to get a big screen version of Best of Both Worlds. That was my expectation. Right. Was that you know, this this was going to just blow my socks off. This was going to be huge, you know the the you know Star Trek versus the Borg on the big screen, and then it came out, and it just wasn't the Borg I wanted. It, it, it was a pale imitation of the Borg, you know, from Best of Both Worlds, you know. And, and the the biggest travesty to me was so much of that movie was wrapped up with the stupid Borg Queen, and I just I don't like that concept. I, you know, I liked them better when they were. You know, they they were robot versions of zombies, basically. 
you know, you know that just kind of milled about aimlessly until you became a threat to them, and then they were just unstoppable. Right. Well, they were like you zo- know, they were zombies, but there was a level of intelligence to them. But it was just a completely alien intelligence. It didn't function right. in any way that we understood. So right. The, yeah, and it certainly didn't talk to you and, and gloat. Right. And, and the things that you know that she did, and that well, that, that, that yeah, was that, almost like they were trying to cross Hellraiser with Star Trek. At that <laughs> at that point, I was like, oh, at first I was like, this is interesting. They're trying to put in a horror element into Star Trek right here, and I'm like, right. And then I remember thinking, okay, I'm down with that. I, I I'll take a horror Star Trek movie. You know, there's been ho- horror Star Trek TV shows. I'll take a horror Star Trek movie. That would be inventive. And then it craps right. out on it, you know. It starts setting up all this creepy stuff, but then it craps out on it, and all that creepy stuff that you might have gone along with just starts not making sense and being just stupid and like, oh, the Borg Queen has kind of fallen in love with Data. You know, whatever. What fucking <laughs> ever. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to uh, Data lore. Yeah, I bet. I think that's about all I got on this one. I I, I really I, I dug this episode. You know what? I just thought of something. I don't know what the next episode is. I think I can't remember. I looked at it the other day and now it's totally slipped my mind. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, we're gonna have a blast with this next one. The next one is Angel One. Do you remember this episode? Uh, uh hum a few bars and maybe I'll remember. Uh, here's what I remember about it: uh, all female-run planet. All the guys that are on that are on the planet are these super-dominated little pussy guys, and Riker gets to wear the faggiest-looking outfit. Oh, to fit in. Any, I yeah. vaguely remember it. <laughs> I vaguely remember it. Yeah, it's. I, I don't remember what the hell the story was about, but it so was. Is it like Rush yeah. Limbaugh's like feminazi nightmare planet? No, well, no, they're, they're not really. They're really not feminazis it's just so a much as they're where just, they've become the dominant sex instead of males. Yeah, they're 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 almost like uh, they're like domineering housewives, but the the guys, you know, because it's a, it's a total uh, reversal. What do you call it? Matriarchy. Yes. But the the guys, you know, it, you, it's easy to see why it's a matriarchy because the guys are these short. Uh, they're almost like eunuchs or oh, something. Oh yeah, they're, you're right. They're all little tiny, runty, weird, stunty guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I rem- I, I remember that now, and like it makes Riker look like a it's- super Uberman. Well, yeah, because you know, here Riker beams down there, and you know he's six foot, whatever, ladies, and he's all brawny, yeah. handsome Riker dude, you know, and they've never seen a, you know, we've never seen a real man, <laughs> you know, and and the and you know the the leader woman is you know this like uber business bitch, but as soon as Riker beams she's down, all milk you know, she's honey. all milk and honey, yeah, exactly. She's like, ooh. So then it gets yeah, back. That's that's back into old school sexist, you know, yes. Kirk. Where Kirk, yeah, you know, no matter much. who the woman is, you know, the queen of the very planet, much. she's all of a sudden she's like compromising yep. her whole planet because she wants to make have Kirk mash his face against her. Exactly. This is one of the easiest episodes to imagine 
uh, transposing it into Kirk era because it's the same damn thing. You can easily see Kirk Spock McCoy beam down to this female dominated planet. Kirk says, your men are a bunch of pussies. Let me show you how it's and done. And he totally puts the Kirk magic onto the queen of the planet and they end up running the show. End of, end of this episode. It's <laughs> <laughs> completely what this is. Completely what this one is. It's it's hysterical. Because <laughs> Riker very much is the Kirk. Yes. Uh, not only in Next Gen, but in that episode in particular, he's he he's Kirk just Kirk. And yeah. 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 It's I, we're gonna have a ball with that one because I remember the episode being like pretty much shit, but that that element of it is a lot of fun. That you know, it's like. You know, we're the equal of any man, and blah blah blah. I mean, we're the masters of our society. Ooh, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> the only difference is Kirk would have slapped somebody at some point. You know, he would have had to slap her to calm her down, and then, then they would have made out. It's like that YouTube video. He would have like grabbed her and mushed his face against her, passionately kissed her, and then when they pulled apart, belched right Knocked her unconscious. <laughs> Keep it classy, Kirk. It. <laughs> oh, we're gonna get letters. James T. Kirk keeping it classy. <laughs> she fell down on the door. I don't know what happened. You know, that's, he's, <laughs> isn't that the one with the planet with the brains and the saline solution or whatever? So you know, he's telling. They're all they're all brains and saline <laughs> solution. Two hundred quatlus on the sexist. <laughs> Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Twotruefreaks.libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T. G-A-R-D-N-E-R Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks.
Future Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Core of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang.
monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us.